don't work in July. No, it should be five awesome. five weeks of industrial vacation as well. I know it's brilliant. Or seven if you I work love in this country so much. <laughs> Um, yeah, awesome. And great to have you here, Lydia. It's a pleasure. And also we have another guest here, Lalle Albersson, Lars Albersson, who has been here before and we, we all know from past. So we have a double dual duo of guests, if we call it that, I guess. Yeah. And you said AI after work. So we have an after work, but going from three to four, it feels even more like a proper after work that, you know, that now the, f now the flow of the conversation is really not linear anymore. You've had another hour of beer. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Maybe that's the point. <laughs> um, and you also recommended Lydia to, to come on the show. Uh, Lars and spoke very warmly about her. So it's, it's uh, great to have you here. It's great to be here again. Yeah. Great fun. What did you say? Um, <laughs> you were speaking earlier about the Geneva Convention. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll reply to that. <laughs> But also, if you were to describe yourself, and I were trying to pronounce your last name, but I, I think I'll, I'll stop that and let you do that yourself. Um, yes. How uh, do you pronounce it? The name it? is pronounced Ashlansky. Ashlansky. Um, mm. But okay. I accept Ashlansky because yeah. it's easier for people. Cool. Awesome. How would you describe yourself? Who, who is Lydia? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need a After like four beers, it'll be four good. beers yeah. is good. Four yeah. beers is good. Um, so I've worked in product and tech for more than 20 years. Yeah. I actually started out with an undergraduate in psychology and I worked as a social worker for mm -hmm. some years until burning out. If anyone wants the unasked for advice is uh, don't work as a social worker in America. Um, especially if you don't have the emotional strength to like carry that burden with you home, which I obviously didn't. So I went back to university for computer science mm -hmm. as one does because, you know, social work and then computer science. That, that's a logical step, right? You, you never want to talk to people again. You're going to look at a machine and it'll be great. Um, that's where, where in America are we now? In Chicago. Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, so and what year was this approximately? Oh gosh. Um, no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, so I went back to university, it would have been 1995, 96, mm -hmm. 96. I'm going to have to think about that for a moment. Mm -hmm. So I did what in the U.S. is called a recertification. So you go and you basically add an extra year to your existing undergraduate degree. Right. And I did that in programming. And so I was taught in COBOL and oh, C++. Oh, COBOL. That's right. Yeah. Um, that's cool. And then I got a job working at an insurance company. Yeah. Um, and that was my first programming job. But it was also my last programming job because, well, that's not true. So it was database programming. And then the next job I got was at cars.com, which is a website that still exists in the U.S., also as a sort of back-end programmer, but also more like a business analyst. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a – there's like a Venn diagram of what we would now call product management and the things that used to be things like business analyst, business architect – business yeah. requirements analyst because product didn't product management didn't quite exist as a discipline outside of Silicon Valley. I think this the is 90s. a theme in its own. Like, uh, yeah. well, let's talk about that theme. That's yeah. The yeah. Already. It's the career theme, the, the way that our careers have changed and evolved and the words we use to describe them. And, and the product versus project. Yeah. The now, yeah. Let's, let's keep them rolling. Yeah. So, but gets, we, we start with the getting to know is always the good. I mean, like telling a story around a journey of, of a career yeah. is a good way to storytell. But it's also, it, 
when I tell the story, it sounds very linear, but the real life experience of it was like, oh, I tripped and I <laughs> fell and here I am. Oh, I tripped again and I fell and Beautiful. oh, look. Uh, anyway, from there, I went and kind of discovered human computer interaction, mm-hmm. which sort of married my tech geeky self to my psychology geeky self. Uh, and I fell in love, and I did a master's and a PhD. The PhD took me to the UK, and here we are today. So that was in the UK 18 years ago. So, so just to clarify for the audience, we are not in the UK today. Yeah, okay, no, we're in Stockholm. Uh, so I lived in the UK for eight and a bit years, I guess almost eight and a half, and then here for the last nine and a half years. So. Yeah. But your PhD then, where you got that interest, did you get that intersect happening in the PhD itself? So the PhD topic, please don't fall asleep as I say it. We're not allowed to like <laughs> drop into your beer with the snooze fest. It's uh, cross-cultural models applied to design, basically. So I looked at uh, Hofstetter, who has a very famous cross-cultural model, and I tried to understand if we could use that model to understand how we design products. So cultures are different. We all agree on that. He has a model to model those differences. Can we apply that model to help us design the interface for China versus the interface for America. Super interesting, of course. Yeah. Very interesting. The answer is no, asleep. just in case you were wondering. Oh, but okay. it was interesting to study. So there's no shortcut or one size fits all. Um, so I couldn't make his model work in various ways. And so there was a lot of sitting in front of a statistical analysis tool called SPSS mm-hmm. and trying to figure out why I couldn't get his model to come out the way he insisted it should come out, which was really hard. Uh, then can you give some concrete yeah, examples? Yeah. Then? I mean, we, we're speaking about different cultures, I, mm-hmm. I guess different countries mm-hmm. uh, and different races or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But can, what kind of products were you actually doing experiments mm-hmm. on? Can you just give so, some concrete yeah, examples? I, I started with something really simple, which is like sort of binary interactions, like light switches. Mm-hmm. They're a great example because in the US and in Sweden, up means on. But in the UK, if you've ever been to the UK or you've lived there, down means on. And this is a binary interaction, but it's completely different. And I'm not sure if that's quote unquote culturally based, but it's definitely based on the country in which you've been raised. And so if you've grown up in the UK, down means on. But if you've grown up in the US or Sweden, up means on. And if you live in an apartment or a house, you inevitably have that one light in the hallway that has two switches on either side of the hallway. And you're always wondering, is it on or is it off? And you're flipping the switches a couple of times, right? Imagine that interaction every day in your London apartment with every switch because your brain is hardwired to think up is on, but all the switches work down is on. And I've just described my eight and a half years in in the UK. I never (laughs) rewired my brain ever. So that was one. And then I looked at um, technology acceptance models, which are much more complex models trying to understand the variables that impact people's acceptance of technology. They're often used in organizational um, change management. Uh, Mm -hmm. because maybe you're releasing a new system into the organization. You want to make sure that all the employees accept that system. Uh, A widely used one is called TAM, T-A-U-M. It doesn't matter. There's a bunch of them. But uh, I use that one and try to model, like, there are differences, and those differences are very trackable between cultures or countries. Mm -hmm. And then overlay that with, again, Hofstad's model and see, like, okay, well, in, I don't know, country X, Y, Z, uh, the social impact of the change will have more influence than how much you paid for the software or whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm just pulling this out of the air. And that should be modeled to the differences in the culture in Husted's model, but it just doesn't work that way. So no, total fail. Got me a PhD though. 
but these, I mean, this was an academic approach to yes. it. Like mm -hmm. you can take si yes. similar, simple examples. <clears throat> these aspects really affect real life products and yes. success in products and yes, so certainly. forth. I, I remember when, <clears throat> when I joined Google, the, the, the sort of the international world was, was of products was open to me and uh, Google's interfaces are very input heavy. You, you type with your keyboard to search things, right? And that works great if your alphabet fits on a keyboard. Mm. Whereas in Asian countries, the yes, alphabets don't fit on a keyboard. So uh, browsing interfaces like Yahoo's, uh, for example, back in the day, were more popular than the search interfaces. Mm. And as a Westerner, you're completely blind to this until somebody like knocks to you hard and open your eyes. Mm -hmm. Mm. But you have probably have many more stories to so on this topic. I, when I was at Google, I worked for the I did um, so I managed emerging markets research for Google, and I managed the small team that did the emerging markets research for Google. So we did travel a lot to different countries. I remember doing just basic usability research for the Google search on um, dumb phones. This was before smartphones were in mm. everyone's hand, but you could still get you know a web page up. Like on your Nokia. The vamp. Yeah, exactly. Um, just watching people struggle with that in Kenya and Nairobi. And these are incredibly intelligent people, but they've done what's often called technology leapfrogging, which means that they haven't sat at a computer and a keyboard their entire lives like we have. They've gone from nothing to the keypad on their phone. And this is, again, this is a dumb device. So you're like tapping a key three times to get whatever letter. And you're watching their fingers and they're like, they're just moving like lightning. My fingers don't move that fast on that small of a keyboard, but they're able to manage that. And then you put them on the laptop that you've set up for the user testing and they can't type. And they're like, hunt for one key, press. Where's the other key? Press. Mm. And again, it's, it, is it cultural? I don't know. It's not because they're Kenyan, but it is because in that culture, so many of the people, even if they're well-educated, upper middle class, middle class. Maybe they're a chef or a nurse. Mm. They have not spent their entire life in front of a computer. Mm. I mean, you already thrown out a number of technical terms also. Um, and I guess we speak much more about, you know, user experience and what is user interfaces and what is usability, etc. cetera. Um, if, to just mention briefly, perhaps, what do you mean when you say usability and, and compare that perhaps to user interfaces or user experiences? So, you can't control a user experience. Um, so you I can, cannot. You, you cannot. Um, I can design the most beautiful, most usable interface on the planet. But if you mm. come to that interface horribly rushed, horribly upset, or in the weather we're having right now, you're, you're not going to have a good user experience. I don't mm. care what I as a designer or an engineer or a product manager do. It could be flawless. But you're going to have a shit experience no matter what. Um, another great example, like... Everyone makes fun of the ticket machines. It was like mm. one of my PhD advisors, that was his favorite rant is ticket machines and train stations. I don't care how well you design them. People Inevitably, are, yeah. It's, people are stressed. They're stressed. There's a queue. There's shit weather. Everything's running late. Your kid is pulling on you. Somebody pushed you from behind. Meh. You cannot have a, yeah, it will always no. be a ticket Can't machine win. experience. Yeah, exactly. So... That's the difference between a user interface. That user mm. interface can be really, really well designed. It can be yeah. top notch. It can be beautifully designed. Maybe they hired a really great visual designer and it's just shockingly great. If you're looking at it in isolation from the rest of the context of your mm. life, 
there is also like a huge difference between user experience and human experience, right? Mm. So the user experience of using a digital product could be great. And then something goes wrong and you call customer support and customer support treats you like you're some sort of third, you know, third class citizen in their minds. And that's it. Mm. So now your company experience and your human experience with that product is also shite. Mm-hmm. But the digital experience was great. I but, have a uh, personal uh, one with that. Can I can I be mean to a product? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we are after work. We do whatever it's, we want. Okay, really? This this is going on YouTube. Post Nord. I don't care. <laughs> I hate Post Nord. My customer experience with Post Nord is horrible. But their app is great. Mm-hmm. I think we should stop being kind to company, companies. I think this is completely backwards. I because guess, yeah, but they know every they know in the me. age of the big data. They know everything about they us. Should do right? they, they have all the information about yeah. us. We have no integrity towards them. Yet, yet we are very prude when it comes to speaking ill about the company next package and I get. share some information <laughs> about companies. My I next package is just going to be smushed. smushed. <laughs> we have to invite someone from PostNode, I think, for yeah, the next yeah. podcast to see, see how they counter this. But can you, can you just you know, elaborate a bit more? You say you can't control the experience, but still, if you have a better interface, doesn't that improve the user experience? Absolutely, but you still can't control the experience, right? So I can't control you as a human being, and I don't want to. Mm. Um, I can't control the context in which you use my products. This is particularly true of your mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Again, I can design that interface to be as usable in all sorts of situations that I can come up with. Crowded trains, uh, kids pulling you in three different directions. But that's still your reality, and I don't control your reality. Mm-hmm. This is my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. So I do think that a lot of time and energy and effort should be spent on creating really well-designed, usable, useful effective, hopefully even beautiful interfaces. Mm. But to give ourselves errors and pretend that we control how that's going to feel to you. uh, Yeah. Mm. But it's interesting because we use these words quite interchangeably. UX, CX. I heard the new one from Accenture was BX. Sounded close to BS, but I I wasn't (laughs) sure. Behavioral experience? No, no, no. Business, business experience. experience. So, and, 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 it, and it touches the topic that you were on to that, well, in order to have a user experience, the argument or CX, it, the interface is not enough. Well, the process is not, it's the whole experience. Like it you is. said, if you have a shitty uh, interaction with, with the customer support, doesn't matter if your digital experience is great. The business experience is shit. You can also even start with the marketing campaign. So usually we come aware of a product or a service because we've seen an ad or someone said something. So it could be word of mouth. It could be advertising. It could be a billboard. But you walk into that product with expectations, right? And your expectations are going to inform the experience you have with that product. So if the marketing team is misaligned from the product team and the marketing team has gone out with this great campaign about we do this. Woo-hoo. We have self-driving cars, so yes. we can let go of the steering wheel. Let go wheel. of the steering wheel, fall asleep, read a book. Um, and then you get in a car accident because the self-driving mechanism isn't up to speed. Then your product experience, your business experience it's is lousy. So, mm-hmm. so there has to be this alignment between what we promise in marketing and advertising, what we deliver in the product, mm. whether that's a physical chair or a you know, clickable app. And then the support we give people when things go wrong, because inevitably mm. things go wrong. Yeah. But, but given you have worked at Spotify, so as you, Lala, and my, myself as well, and if you just take an example here, it's at least some people uh, make a difference between user interface, you know, mm-hmm. just, you know, how the interface looks like. Mm-hmm. Let's take a concrete example, like Discovery Weekly or some, you know, the search functionality in, on Spotify or something. The interface is one thing, but the functionality underneath is a different thing, potentially. 
And then the user experience, according to some people at least, can be really poor, even the even if the interface is great, but just the functionality is really poor. Mm-hmm. Sure. So then the experience is is bad. Yes. Do you think this is a bad use of the terms user experience then? Not necessarily. So I, I like to think of it as the useless kitchen equipment example. So raise your hand if you have something in your kitchen that you bought that you thought was cool, but you've never used since. <laughs> Everyone. I, ever, I, I never buy anything no, unusual. No. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, no, not me. Um, but it's true. And for some reason, it's always in the kitchen equipment drawer. Like, oh, I'm going to need that thing that zests limes and only limes because I don't know why. But the useless kitchen equipment scenario is exactly this. Mm. You're in a shop. You're like, oh, this is so cool. Or it's cute. I have... It is a fish-shaped egg separator. Don't ask. But it was super cute. And it was like three euros in a little shop in Spain. And like, why not? But its usability is shit. Mm. It's really hard to understand how to use it. And why do you need an egg separator? Think about mm. it. You crack the egg. You pour it. You, like well, That is what I didn't understand. Yeah, what like it separates the, the, the yellow. Yeah, the yolk. yellows from, yeah, the yolk uh, from the whites. Yes. But think about why you would need, okay, logically, I'm making fun of my own self. I realize this. But if I had stopped and paused about that three euros, like why the hell do you need a device in your kitchen shaped like a fish that separates the yolks from the whites? Like you just don't. Um, but I paid for it and I brought it home and now it lays in a drawer. It's not a terribly useful piece of equipment. Mm. The user experience of using it is quite hilarious and completely useless. My son loves trying to play with it, especially when we're baking together because it never works. Or if it works, then the yolk ends up like halfway across the... Yeah, yeah, it's horrible. So, But you do it anyway, right? You're attracted to it. It was pretty to look at. It was cute. It was in the shop. It didn't cost too much. It was like, oh. And again, the context is really important. I'm on holiday in Spain with my family and we're in this cutesy little shop. No, look. It's an egg separator. Yeah, Sounds like most guess. electronic products to me. Yeah. I wasn't going to go there, though. <laughs> I decided not to pick on <laughs> So I have a question for you. you you've done uh, like uh, UX or U star. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. No, now I don't know how to frame it anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, since way back, yes. since before the age of, of big yes. data and so yes. forth, uh, how has it changed over time? It's it, so much easier now with good data information, data insights, as I would like to call them, to understand how people are using your existing product. Because you have real-time information about where did they click? How many times did they click there? Now you still need the qualitative side of it because you don't know what the experience, the why or the how did it feel to you to click that button. But I can tell that I have 500 people in the city of Stockholm clicking this thing right now and 400 people in the city of Gothenburg clicking this thing right now So you get real-time information on how things are being used, at least the how and the when and the where, sometimes even the who, depending on how how much data you're gathering and cooking and all the rest of it, um, and how far far from GDPR you're going. We won't go down that road. But you didn't have that before, or you didn't have it in that kind of magnitude. So uh, the term real-time is a bit overloaded. Yeah, that's true. Uh, There's a wonderful real-time... user interface from like the 50s. It's in one of the big power stations way up north mm-hmm. in Sweden, where when the, when the frequency drops in the, in the network, there's too little power. So that there's a guy like opening the dams to, to produce more power. And that's, that's the only example I've seen of real-time analytics, right? That's, that's, that's immediate real-time. So what, what kind of 
time cycles are we talking about here? Basically, in a given day, you can go and see yesterday, X number of people clicked on this, X number of people put this in their shopping cart, X number of people checked out, X number of people abandoned their shopping cart. And you can do this all the time. So, so do, for the next day, you, you have some new experiments. Or, exactly. Yeah. So you're right. Real time is horribly overloaded. But you can actually, and I've had this done in various teams that I've managed where you release something new and then everyone's on the dashboard clicking refresh yeah. every 15 <laughs> seconds. You've been there. Um, like, how many likes did you get? How many likes? Exactly. <laughs> this is true. So the, the real time feedback of a Facebook like or a retweet or uh, whatever but this information wasn't available before. You would basically wait for reports to be given to you at the end of a week or at the end of the month that had been queried out of the database. Um, I do think it's really empowering to have a lot of those insights. The problem is it can also be really overwhelming. I do think that we are, we've gone, we've swung so far to the quote unquote data driven that we are actually data driven, which I don't like. We are not machines. We shouldn't be driven by data. We should be informed by data. So I, like any team I've ever been on, I like automatically you are not data driven. No, data informed. It's like, no, resist. Um, but if you have too much data and you don't know what questions to be asking it, then it's just useless noise. That's the point, right? Going from data to information to insight. Yes. That's the whole idea, right? Exactly. And instead of just saying this button was clicked 50 times, should we make this button bigger? Like that's the difference between data driven <laughs> exactly. and data informed. Like this data, this button was clicked 50 times. Okay. That's interesting. Why? Exactly. There's a wonderful rant. It's, it's really old now, but one of the UX designers at Google, who ranted about the 47 shades of blue, where he couldn't design anything without all of these AB testing, religious <laughs> people coming and saying, you have to AB test that. And then they ended up with everything had an individual shade of blue, right? Um, because it was all very A-B testable. There was no consistency. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many terms like this now, you know, being data-driven or data-first or data-only. You know, we spoke about the Spotify quite sometimes. Um, um, at least at that time, you know, data-only is really bad. You know, this is not what you want it to is. do. And I do think right? that companies have this tendency to swing. By the time I came to Spotify much later, I guess, in its growth, but by the time I got there, there was uh, air I cannot pronounce that. Okay. Algorithm plus editorial. Right. Algorithm. Algorithm. One of those. I don't know. I can't say it. But you guys know what I'm talking about. So it's the algorithm that supported this algorithm supported the human beings curating the playlists, right? Because the algorithm alone is not going to get you the weird new thing that no one knows about and hasn't liked 500 times. But the editor, who's a human who's following music trends and going to the clubs and talking Seems to their buddies, yes. And adds that to the playlist so that it can get the 50 million likes. Yeah. Now we're back to the, one of our favorite pets, um, um, amplified intelligence or mm. augmented intelligence. intelligence. But this is why I always talk about being data informed. I want the information. And then I am a human being. I, I hope I'm a relatively intelligent mm. human being who can use that information to inform my decisions. I can also go against the information and say, I see what the data says, but I'm going to try something else. And I may have a really good reason for that or not, but I'm still making that decision based on what I've read and I've seen. I think that honestly, this is, this is basic scientific method, right? I have information based on the information. I make some sort of assertions, assumptions, let's call them hypotheses. I see if they're real. As I get new information, new insights, validate, I may reject, validate, reject iterate, etc. Yeah. Um, so yeah. 
But can I can I be so blunt to take the story back a little bit? So how from PhD, how do you get into the product career, so to speak, or is Google, was, Spotify? Um, yeah, so that? I was always working through my master's and through my PhD. I was doing contract work and consulting. I I don't come from a very wealthy family, so I have to pay the bills. Uh, so I was always working. So I never went whole whole hog or whole PhD. I mean, for I did. Free. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I wish. Um, I had grants, and I had the Overseas Research Council something or other award. But it doesn't. I mean, you're an international student in London, so yeah, you all are. You all are good at math. You can do that math. So you have to work. So I always worked, and when I finished my PhD, I was already working full time because that last year, when you're writing up, you can either sit at your PhD office not making any money, which is not an option if you're living in London. Or you want to continue living in London and not move in with your sister into her basement, which I didn't. I love you, Anna, um, but not your basement. So, or at least not for more than three weeks at a time. So, I worked and I just continued to work. I played around with staying in academia for a while. Um, I had uh, I was on a named grant, but I'll, I'll be really blunt: that grant and the salary I would have gotten per year was one fifth of what I could make even as a junior designer in industry. You just, you can't live on that. I just, I don't even understand. It's 18,000 great British pounds. Okay. Granted, this is more than 10, 15 years ago, more than 16 years ago. You just, you don't live on that. Well, not in London, not if you don't want to be living with 70 housemates in a single room, like or in, your ba- or in the basement of your, yes, my sister's house. So, that was not the life I was aspiring to. Maybe that makes me a horrible non-socialist, but I just stayed in industry. That was it. So and I never really considered going down the academic profession. And when you went into industry, was it always around product management? Or was yeah, it so a direct path into product design, management? So I did a lot of design work, um, not visual design, so let me be very clear about that, but interaction design, inf- what used to be called information architecture. I was a... I had a comma at Nokia. My title was was it design specialist, comma usability, or something like that. On your business card, that's a a comma in my title. This was a big (laughs) accomplishment in my life. Um, And then research, and it was actually uh, when I think I yeah I think it was when I joined Google. The PhD speaks a lot. I think at companies like Google, so it was automatically like we don't want you in design, we want you in research. So and that was great. But Nokia now, what did you actually do at Nokia? I worked in the design studio in London. So the design studio in London did all sorts of cool and interesting things. Some of them even made it to a phone. Oh, you, you have touched. This is mine. Have you, yeah, have you got a couple no, of those? I don't think I do, actually. <laughs> I, I, I used another one used for after work. I saw on television that a documentary about one of the guys behind many of the sounds yeah. in the Mac. Okay. And he didn't get any money for that, of course. No. But that, that's my... Wing. When he's, yeah, yeah and, so and he, and he, I actually he, sat next to the sound designer, Henry Daw. He's a lovely human. Hi, Henry. Uh, he sat next to me at a, for a long time at Nokia, and he did sounds. Yeah. So not just the ringtones, but also like the beepy sounds. And yeah. But what's your claim of fame from Nokia that we know, um, or someone could know? That is, so we, we had a whole project um, that I was highly engaged in for iconography, but not necessarily just the iconography on the screens, but the iconography on the packages. And what is iconography? So the icons that you would see on the side of the packaging that told you that there was a camera, Okay. right? So there's a little camera icon that tells you that there's a camera on the phone. Iconography, that's a new one for me. Oh, there you go. Here's another new one. It's called a cartouche. 
So I, this is a great word. Hello, Mr. Lee Cooper. So my friend and colleague Lee Cooper taught me this word. We were looking at, again, the packaging iconography and the packaging design. And the icons would come as a cartouche. And a cartouche is a term from Egyptology. You have the main icon, the main character, and then you have two or three defining icons. And that downward sort of column of information is a cartouche. You heard it here. Uh, I, I feel it. like I'm teaching English yeah. vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. I love is that it. something from, from ancient Egyptian? Is it the, I think it is hieroglyphic style? It, it, yeah, but you know what I mean? Like you had the main hieroglyph and then you would have yeah, yeah, hieroglyphs yeah. that defined this it. this is a cartouche. Yeah. And this is a cartouche, yeah. So we looked at those. We traveled all over the world <clears> trying to understand how people understood that communication because an image can be something really different. A really great example came in, coming out of that Research I still use, actually, when I talk to students now, um, it's the lightning bolt sign, the electricity sign. When you put that next to a camera, it, auto mm. it usually means flash. it's a flash, yes. Mm -hmm. But if you isolate it and it's just there, people are like charging. Electricity can give you a shock. It was amazing how people would react to that depending on where on the cartouche mm. it was. Mm. Exactly. And now we even know how to use the word. Fantastic. It's not it's me. like a discourse of science in some way. I know. Way. It's yeah. not me, though. It was Lee Cooper. I had no idea that word existed in the English vocabulary. So Nokia is sort of one of the famous companies. That, I mean, in America, they have Blockbuster and, and, and so forth. All of these that had huge market share mm. and then just plummeted. Mm. And in Scandinavia, we have Nokia as the primary example. <laughs> the primary example everywhere. <laughs> uh, Sorry. Our lo a local example. <laughs> Our local example. So uh, you were there at at sort at of the time team. of the nosedive. Uh, yes. Did you have any part in it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we're not supposed so, to talk about. What, what it, in hindsight, what, <laughs> what what is your observation? Of, of, um, we of spent that an term. enormous amount of time. So it's interesting. Um, There were a couple of different operating systems at Nokia, S40, S60, and Symbian. And then they also invested an enormous amount in, in Mego. By the way, if you have one of those phones, they're now worth stuff, like actual money. This is vintage. Vintage Mego on eBay will get you some cash. And you can connect them around Kubernetes. On. There you go. I did not know that. <laughs> no, I just uh, I'm just saying, though, like, <laughs> you had me. You, you, you could have, I could have, like, gone to work tomorrow and been like, Dudes. Dude. Um, and then you just run Cobalt on it. Um, <laughs> exactly. you, can, you can get a lot of money for working as a Cobalt programmer Cobalt today. Program, so yeah, no. you, know, you have a fantastic uh, yeah. opportunity if you want to. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I think, in my humble opinion, I think that Nokia invested too much trying to chase iPhone and then Android mm -hmm. instead of focusing on the core markets. Its S40 operating system was really cheap and really easy to run and really easy to program. We had a working prototype of an S40 device with a touchscreen, but it was never developed. And the S40 operating system was all over the emerging markets. So all of those Nokias and people's phone uh, pockets all over Asia, uh, South America, Africa, they were all S40 operating system. Mm -hmm. So imagine taking that, adding mm -hmm. a touchscreen on top of it. And they could have had it. They could have had it because yeah. what do you have now with the cheaper Android devices? Exactly oh. that. But they never went for that. They went for the Mego. And what, is that? what was that? Uh, Microsoft. This was the Microsoft yeah. one, right? I read an interesting article uh, of, of that choice they made, and and they said, yeah, we talked to Google, you know, about Android and so forth, <laughs> and 
they were only interested in our hardware. They were completely uninterested in the mm. software, which in hindsight is kind of obvious, mm. right? Uh, and they, and, but that hurt their pride, yeah. right? So they went for the worst choice, partnering with Microsoft, Microsoft. which also had bad enough software so that it's now gone. Right? Mm. And I've, I see that self-delusion in companies mm. uh, everywhere. I recently shared an article that where I found some interesting connections between uh, the uh, Toyota and GM had a, had a collaboration in the 80s and uh, that that plant worked perfectly. It, it, they produced high quality cars efficiently. That was the only GM plant to produce mm. good cars. But GM still did not accept that they needed to go down the lean path. Mm. They thought that the consumer reports were, were like biased and that Japanese quality didn't exist. Mm. So it's the power of self-delusion is, mm. is amazing. And I, I still see that in so many companies. Yep. They think that the Googles and the Spotify's and the Netflixes of the world, they're not all that different from, from us. We, we can do what they do. We just need a little bit of AI or mm. a little bit of big data or a little bit of this. And we're, we're almost like them. I am waiting for that to also catch up with the companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, and the Spotify's, because it seems all companies get to a level of, I don't know, complacency maybe is the word I'm looking for, but a level of comfort with where they are and their market share and the billions upon billions of billions that they're earning, and they rest on their laurels. I don't know. They do something. I'm waiting. It will happen in our lifetime. What do you mean that the, the crash? It will like the the someone like, will pull down the it's chase and it's right. You exactly. You don't know the next competitor. Like when I think about it, and people are like, "Well, who's going to compete with Google?" I don't know. Somebody will. How? I don't know. I mean, it's like Google said themselves, and they're not that afraid about you know big enterprises, but they are really afraid about the innovative startups that yeah. can just you know completely take over yeah. some that dude niche and dude somebody in somebody's garage or in some sister's basement. I, I the next cycle, it, exactly, it, it will happen. When uh, when we were at Google, they were absolutely obnoxious about social. Right, mm-hmm. that was the rise of Facebook, yeah. and they spent Google as, Plus as such a massive <laughs> uh, effort trying to like conquer and get into that space. Google Plus was a great product. From a technical point of view. Yeah. I I, I like it. Who used it? I used it. I I liked it. For a couple of months. (laughs) (laughs) I really liked it. It was the fastest growing product in the, in the history Mm. of of computing, right? Uh, Possibly because we had to integrate it with every other product in the (laughs) ecosystem to get our yearly bonuses. But hey, but even the power of Google could not conquer that space, right? Yeah. So everybody's vulnerable. Did you work with Google Plus in any way? Yeah, everyone had to. So uh, again, the emerging markets team looked at integrating it into a lot of our products. There were a lot, again, there were a lot of cultural problems with doing that. One of the interesting characteristics of Google Plus was that it used your real identity. There's a whole lot of situations in the emerging markets where you do not want to expose your real identity. Right. So one of the emerging markets product that Google had at the time, I don't know if it still exists, was a Q&A forum called Ijabat. It was uh, the largest Arabic language site in the world. And they would talk about all sorts of things on that Arab language site, including like, how do you get an abortion? What's birth control? <laughs> you may not want to be exposing your You're identity realized. talking about those topics in certain countries. But if you integrated with Google+, it would automatically expose your real identity. They also talked about politics. They talk, you know, you, again, there are certain countries where that literally means a death sentence. So there was a lot. That's a flow in thinking for some markets. It's a very 
But again, this is where culture comes in and mm. not culture as in big C, but culture as in this is the country where I live mm. and these are the laws governing the this society. This is the ethics and values. Yes. And you guys in Silicon Valley in your little bubble of, of course, you want to use your real identity. No, no, I do not. Because my life depends on it. But still, yeah. other, Facebook and others, they, they try to at least they do. make use of real identities. Well, well it's, right? it's good for other reasons, right? It's combating, yeah. uh, you know, hate on, on the internet and abuse yeah. and so forth. So there, so there are pros and cons. Huge, pros, cons. huge yeah. pros, yeah. right? <coughs> Especially in a society where people are abusing yeah. you know, online identities. So there's all cool. sorts of things to be said for it. Should we just try to, to, to uh, finish up the... Um, the career ladder, so <laughs> oh, to speak. Sorry. I mean, we we spoke a bit about you know you started off with um, degrees in psychology and mm -hmm. then you did your PhD and uh, what should you call it like human uh, computer yeah, interaction and then you you worked meanwhile as well. You worked at uh, Nokia, if I remember. Uh, What's that yeah. directly after no, the PhD? So was I worked at agencies in London for a long time. Right. So well, not a long time for a few years, and then I went to Nokia. So I mm. left agency land and went in house. Agency consultancies in these areas. So it's less consultancy and more agency. So an agency gets a project, builds the project, and then hands it over. Whereas a consultant might go into a company like Lars right now does a lot of consulting work. He goes into a company, he integrates with the company. He may take himself and many of his team, but it's not like, Hello, like I have built you a website. A product or design agencies. Yes, exactly. Interestingly, we're trying to flip that around. So we shifted from consultancy to like, data agency. Oh, this is your new. You, maybe you need to flip the, the branding here. Well, we, it, it's challenging. It it's is really challenging, yeah. Because yeah. an agency would deliver a project and that project would then live in-house in that company. Well, we're trying to make it live out-house. But it's, Ooh, it's challenging better. because pe people don't know what it is. People don't know how mm -hmm. to buy it. People don't understand how to interact with it. Everybody knows how to buy an hour. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you just elaborate a bit more, Lala? I don't think I don't. I didn't get it exactly. What do you mean? What's the difference between so, the data agency and the <laughs> consultancy? I've never used the term agency before. So, um, my ever since like leaving Spotify a, a number of years ago, my mission, personal mission in life, has been to to bring the the powers and the ability of and efficiency of, of big data mm -hmm. and nowadays machine learning and AI out beyond the big tech companies, right? right. And so I started uh, doing that as a, uh, first at, at Shipster where I met Lydia, uh, where we were starting a new like data platform and uh, in-house uh, capabilities and so forth. And then I moved on to, to like freelancing and doing that as a consultant. Uh, and, but you are very limited because it, you come in there and they say, oh, can you help us build this technology? Well, mm -hmm. the technology doesn't matter. We need to change the way that you work and the way that you collaborate and the way that you organize and think. Mm -hmm. uh, no, we can't change that. Can you help us like run this Hadoop cluster or whatever? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I can't actually do anything, right? I can't, can't affect mm -hmm. anything. I can do the tech, but you know what? To get efficient, you need to work efficiently. Yeah, exactly. it, it's just like the, the, the Toyota GM plant, right? The, mm -hmm. there, were, there were GM managers went to photograph the, the plant and then they thought they would copy that in another yeah. plant and everything was, would be what, fine. What were they doing <laughs> in the plant? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so our, our business model mm -hmm. these days is to, in order to sort of replicate the efficiency and the dynamics of, of, of that I primarily learned at Spotify, but, but that, that I see at other big tech companies as well. We are a, a we work in collaboration with the, uh, with the customers. We work with their data and with their use cases and their business models and 
we but we uh, do the data refinement and and build the pipelines and and host them and run them and and so forth as a, as a sort of a, a an external team but in collaboration mm-hmm. just like you would have an internal data team or recommendations teams mm-hmm. uh, and and we're thereby trying to get the same level of efficiency because it mm-hmm. doesn't the technology doesn't matter we need to control how we work so the function is more important than the tech in some way yes yes we yeah. work with very very simple technology and, and, and yes. bottom line we have had this discussion even when you start up I, i remember we had a uh, one of our community sessions where we basically picked apart and we, we remember that we did the brainstorming yeah, 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 really absolutely. early and i said to you a little bit like this is super cool but it's really it's a new service category it's ultimately a new service category so it's a little bit like it's going to be a hard time selling the first fax machine yeah but because yeah. in this space that I, th- i think that's what you're aiming for which is super cool and i think it's valid point but you you, you need to establish the category at the same time in some it ways it is hard and uh, because people know how to do that yeah. for like a marketing campaign they will have external marketing agencies that they work with mm-hmm. for literally a hundred years and this yeah. is the agency yeah. that does their christmas marketing campaign every year but to do that data with data is yeah. and and all of this cool isn't it super cool essentially Come i think in. <laughs> I've only met two companies so far uh that are humble enough to say yes this kind of makes sense. All of the others say no this can't be very hard. We would like to do this ourselves and I was like and then they go on year after year after year and they never catch up that, because they also to some degree they are delusional about their own capability but also about how far ahead The, the the big tech actually is that divide is is yes. enormous yeah and, and this is something that not many people truly truly understand like truly understand that yes it's a gap yeah yeah whatever no 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 yeah light years gap light years gap could we zoom into to your experience from that gap as well how how it, how it differs like how how you use data and information because i i don't i don't think that people Uh, realize so it, this, this it's so it's so interesting because especially when you go into a startup that hasn't really understood what data it sits on but they're tracking everything right they're using mm-hmm. something like mixpanel or whatever and there's like 100 tags all over everything and you go into mixpanel and you're like i just want to know how many people open the app and there's literally seven different tags that have been tracking app open in various bits of the app and you're like why i i just do we have a number of how many people open the app every day Yes. Where is it? And then you walk into a company like Google and you're like, I want to know how many people use Gmail today. And they're like, which country, which gender, which age group? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, Boom. Uh, do you also want to know the eye color and the age? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, yeah. Like you can go into, I'm making, I'm picking on startups and I shouldn't, but you can go into a company that doesn't understand the value of the data that it sits on. And you can ask a really simple basic question as a product person, right? I work as a CPO. I want to know how many people are in my app every day. Just give me the answer. How many people are in my app on a, what's the D, daily active user? Give me the DAU. So I, I, Most what, basic KPI. One of the th- first things I, I did at Spotify was was to be in the team that was responsible for the, the what was called master user. So that that is the master data management for for the for the number of or for the set of users. Uh, nowadays it's like two three hundred million or something. 
And, and that, the definition of user actually turns out to be fairly difficult because yeah. one, you have the main category that I have created an account and that's simple. Mm-hmm. Then you have the ones that sign up with Facebook and the ones that just get a link that they click on and then and they then get the a public user and then the families and, and yada. And the d- definition is fairly difficult. So we had this little tangle of, of data pipelines that would, that would produce this single data set. Uh, and we had, uh, like we were, we were four or five people and we were creating 10 of these like master core important data sets. And then we were also building the data platform. And then when I was freelancing, one of my first clients, uh, I, I sat next to a team that were doing the equivalent of master user. They had this master data management for their use. There were like five, six people uh, with a commercial tool. And the only thing that they did, all of these five, six people, were to create a view of the users or the customers that they had, right? And, and that's an order of magnitude in efficiency. We had point one person who kept this mm-hmm. this master user alive, right? This is one example of highlight, highlighting the difference. The, the, the yes. divide, yes. But I find that this is the most effective way. So when people try and say like, oh, how hard can it be? I explain like there is a department of about 150 people doing just this thing, whatever that thing is, this is their day-to-day job for years. You think you can hire a single data scientist and catch up with them? Good. Good. Amazing. It's so true. And um, <clears throat> the complexity of just organizing your data. I mean, uh, even from Peltorian side, you know, when I worked there, mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's so often that you come to a company and you ask them, do you have data mm-hmm. for this? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Have so much data is no problem. Uh-huh. And then I'm like, can you just extract it? Can you just show it? Can you just you know give us some mm-hmm. sample? Like, yeah, well, it will take some time, and we don't really know who's owning this, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not really cleaned up yet, and blah blah blah. And there are twenty tags tracking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I think that this is one of the reasons that I say you have to understand the questions you're trying to answer with the data. Data is just noise until you ask the right questions. And the questions have to be either driven by a business need, like you want to understand something for the business or you want to understand something for a user community or a user segment. There has to be an intelligent question that you're asking, and then we can use data to answer that. I think this is why I think this is why Lars has a potentially great new product category. Because it's not just that you guys are helping them build the data pipelines and maintain it. You're doing that with the intelligence of what are the questions you want answered. Anyone can build you a quote-unquote data pipeline. Yeah, I can put tags all over the bloody thing and pipe it into Mixpanel or Google Analytics. So? And part of the things that they need help with is actually starting from the questions and from the use cases. So so I've been running workshops where, right, now. Now, let's look at your, your company and, and what data you have and, and, and what we can do with it. Well, we have lots of interesting data here and here and here. Okay, great. And we, ha- it would be really interesting to look at. And this really interesting that that's a sign of no business value, mm-hmm. right? So when you try to make them think, what can we do that we can test that would actually provide real business value in terms of money mm-hmm. saved yep. or value for your users? That is really hard to think in those terms. For, but for but l- let's uh, develop your business model here and now for free. <laughs> I do consulting. Lydia's But but because what you what we summarize what Lydia's saying is b- bottom line, you have a double whammy of value that you are providing by doing this new product category. Because in order for your product category to work, part of your 
approach needs to be to distill down the real business value questions. Yes. So basically by simply forcing someone to go to the data agency, it forces them to work with the agency to distill down the question. Yeah. Now, what is more valuable, the pipeline or the actual getting to the business question? It's equally important, I think. And that can be sometimes be easier with an uh, with an external agency, yes. just like you, you know your marketing campaigns. You know, no, it, the, but it's a little bit like in order for your product category to work, you need to be super professional in the methods to distilling down the question. Yes. Otherwise, you have no core business. Exactly. So you are a master of, of distilling out the real question. This is a core value of, of your product category. You yes. just defined your business model. You see what I mean? He's good. You know, yes. so, and now we go, you know, if you want more, you come to this. <laughs> <laughs> that was a teaser. That was good marketing. I like it. Yeah, perhaps it shouldn't be called data agency. I mean, it's more yeah. about the business, right? Yeah, it's a, we, we call it data value as a service. I like that. Oh. I really like that. that I data do. value as a service. But I, I, but the way we had the conversation now and the way you distilled it down, like, boop, is like two values, two big values. Absolutely. Because again, building data pipelines, housing, storing, tracking data is expensive. If you're never going to use that data to answer a meaningful question for your business, then why the hell are you doing it? It's like ex adding extensions to your home when you're never going to use those bedrooms or those rooms. Mm. They're going to remain empty. Then why? Why would you spend the money? It's like uh, buying kitchen appliances, which I never do uh, unnecessarily, <laughs> but other people I've heard do. It was a fish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's one of the early mistakes we made it at uh, Shipstead as well. Mm -hmm. And it, it fell out of the organization, right? When, yeah. uh, when we were doing data at Spotify, we were organized along the value lines. Mm -hmm. So from the source of the data to the value. So from the collecting data in the mobile phone to the uh, uh, calculate and discover weekly, for example, there were a few teams. There, it's just not one team, but there were just a few teams. So, so is this what we now talk about? We need to organize around value streams, or is it different? Because I think this is a little bit different. I mean, like this is technically as well. Well, it's again, you know who the consumers are of the value, right? So mm -hmm. you're tracking something, and there's one, two, maybe even ten teams that will then take that tracked information, the data, mm -hmm. and actually make use of it in a meaningful way. They will change an algorithm. They will change an interface. They will update their product. They will do something meaningful with that information. And they have a, have a well-defined mission, usually, which is either serve an external customer, make a user happy, or make an internal user happy. There, there's some kind of there's happiness. Need. There's a need, exactly. So when we started out with this uh, effort that we, where we both were at Chipstep, where the, the, uh, there was a, a very bombastic effort to create a common tech and data organization right. in, mm -hmm. in the company. And for people that don't know ships, that can you just describe oh, yeah. what they do? Lock it, after yeah. blot it, uh, clark.se, tv.new, uh, svenska dog blot it. That's just in So it's a media house, one it of the is. biggest in so the So I the double Nordics. dog dare anybody that lives in Sweden to go a week without using a Shipstead product. It's mm. not physically uh, possible. It's not possible. And uh, the, uh, they're most known, at least in Sweden and Norway, for the media houses, but the, but the cash the, uh, cash, the cash cow, cow is, is uh, Blocket. Blocket. And all of the international clones of Blocket, where, yeah. where Le Bon Coin in France yeah. is the biggest and one. And now that, I mean, now that's a separate <clears throat> company called Adam. 
Adaventa, is that how you pronounce it? Adaventa. Yeah. Um, but when we were there, that was one big. Yeah. Look, it can also c- cause people to steal other people's uh, motorbikes, which happened to me last week, by the way. Because, oh. yes, sorry, sorry. because you, you, you were not, <laughs> so you, you lost your bike because you were not security conscious enough or what? Yeah, well, because Blocket wasn't uh, sufficient uh, security. Yeah. So were you selling your bike and someone yeah. just came and took it? Yeah. <gasps> Dude, the day before in Sweden? I of, in Sweden. In Sweden. <laughs> no, it's not block fault. It's my fault. But no. still, you know, you, you want to have someone to blame. But sorry to hear. But yeah. tracking back here, yes. what, what, one of the mistakes we made in, in that early effort was to organize not along the value lines, right, mm-hmm. driven by need, but organize around functions. So there was this team yes. that was collecting things. There was this team that were building a. Uh, cleaning the data, there was this team that was building a user model, and I was in that team for a while, and then there was this team doing ads, uh, but the chains were not there, and the, these teams were often in, were in different sites as, as well. Mm. So the, it wasn't a pull, right? It, it, it wasn't in Toyota terms, a pull driven by pull, it was driven by push. Data comes in here, and then flow, flows through, and then we hope that something good comes yeah, out. And then we didn't even listen to what I would call the brands or the companies that then needed mm. to consume the data. They'd be like, Thanks. Now what? Now what? <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but actually, can, can we go here? Because I have a hard time picturing. Th- th- I understand the value what you're highlighting, how you're thinking in Google. How does that org chart look like? You know? <laughs> Sorry, seriously. It's like 150,000 people now. I have no idea what that is. No, but, but, like, but it, let's go down to a, an example of where you were thinking. Like, Should I explain so, the Spotify model? <laughs> no, no, is it? Not, I no. mean, like, I don't think it is. I mean, like, or is it? I mean, no. like, so what is, what is the basic organizing mechanism then? What, what is the organizing quanta in this? I would say, again, it's the question. What question are you trying to answer? And maybe there's one or two team that will consume that question. So, again, let's break it down to a really concrete mm-hmm. example. You want to know how many people are in your app. Mm-hmm. The question is, why do you want to know that? Well, you can optimize the login process because if they're logging in three, four times a day, then maybe it shouldn't be password every single time, mm-hmm. right? Maybe it should just be like you enter it once every week and then we reset it and we only check your password once every week. It's, you know, persistent login because they're logging in like five times a day and who wants to like type in their password five times a day? Maybe there's 10 teams in your organization using that daily active user number or logging in instance number. But the question, you have to be led by the question, the value as yeah. as Lala says it. But So the question is, uh, the, the core domain question has some sort of core mechanism in how we organize. Uh, well, is that what you're saying? I don't know if it necessarily needs to be organizational I, structure. No, I, I think there are there are several well, successful examples of organizational structure and, and several different ways of working that can lead to success. And and, and Google and Spotify are, are very different in these yes. aspects. Google is a very coordinated company. Yes. Here's the way that you work. You, know, you march along with the same rhythm. Uh, and that makes it easy to do some things, like changing things across the company. Uh, I, I was there when they, when they uh, rolled out the zero trust model, which is a buzzword these days, but it was rolled out back in 2007, 2008. And that is, I mean, that, that's going to take decades for, for, for the enterprises, company, right? That, that, that was something that Google actually could do fairly quickly. But, but, but what is the concreteness of this marching two together? What does that mean? There, there is one way to sort of uh, not write code, but, but 
to get code into production. There is so a very standardized design. Very, very standardized. There is the on, on a very low quanta level. And there is the, the transparency within the company. So you can go and look at what other people are doing and, and there are ways to amplify the transparency because you can actually have search filters to look in their daily diaries to figure out if somebody has the right problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was working on some things and I was creating filters to look in people's automatically look in people's snippets. So when I, when somebody else was working on the same thing, I got a, I got an email and I could talk to them and say, Hey, let's collaborate to solve this problem. No, no, no other company has this. Can, can I check, check question now if I understand? Because everybody thinks we need to have autonomy in the different teams and we talk about freedom and autonomy, but in order to reach no. the full level of autonomy, you have a huge standardization so on another level. This is my or- massive pet peeve. Everyone talks about autonomy. With autonomy comes accountability. Yeah. If you have autonomy without accountability, what you have is fucking chaos. Yes. <laughs> or anarchy, right? No, anarchy would at least be fun. <laughs> this is just <laughs> chaos. You can, everyone talks about autonomous teams, autonomous teams, yada, 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 yada. Where is the accountability? Thank you. Thank you. This is my point, right? In order to get to what looks on the surface as autonomy is rigorous standards on a different level. There is an accountability. So the visualization that I use for anyone that has children in their lives, they don't have to be your kids, but a kid. I have an eight-year-old. He wants to get dressed himself. Obviously, he wants autonomy. That's cool. Wear whatever the heck you want, as long as it's seasonally appropriate. Mm-hmm. That is called That's the standard. <laughs> it is January. You're not wearing shorts and flip-flops. It is July. You are not wearing your ski suit. But I know of parents who sort of miss the, the accountability part, even even in parenting. But, uh, you know, but in my car, I'm an Eastern European mama. So, you know, there's some... <laughs> tra- tracking back here, uh, what I'm saying is that... Uh, there are, you can have autonomy and some, some companies have. Google is not particularly autonomous or the units of autonomy are large. Like in, in Spotify, there are one, te- one team, one squad. Uh, at, at Google, the, the, the units of autonomy is like, you know, 100, 200 people or, or something. Um, but, and then you, on the other hand, you, you have, you have the, the Spotify. So Amazon also has, has a lot of uh, single team and the two mm-hmm. pizza teams and, and the single threaded owner yeah, yeah, and yeah. so forth. Right. Um, but, no matter what strategy you choose, you the the strategy will have strengths, and that there you're safe, and then it will have drawbacks. And then you need to put in countermeasures to handle these drawbacks. Otherwise, you have chaos. <laughs> so, chaos. so it, it, in in an autonomous uh, culture, you need to have some things that. Lim- that put accountability in place, and and Spotify didn't used to have that, but now has has uh, uh, a stronger sort of mechanism for this. And you also need to have like technical some kind of t- of, of uh, me- uh, mechanisms in place to limit the technical chaos that can occur. Uh, in Amazon, that was the they defined early that you should have. Your data should be available through APIs, and we don't care what language you use, but you, there's a standardized interface so that everybody else can get your data. Spotify has other mechanisms. Spotify accidentally coordinated by installing a Hadoop cluster. And Hadoop is so bloody expensive to operate that you can only have one Hadoop cluster unless you're suicidal. So, and it, it, and it also was so limited. 
early on that you can only work one way with a Hadoop cluster. So by accident, they got coordinated. And those accidents that were implicit through the early adoption of Hadoop is are strong factors behind Spark. But I think this, I, I must say, this is so interesting. I work predominantly with how to make traditional companies, enterprises, data and AI ready, data driven, right? Mm -hmm. And when, when someone comes from the enterprise world and try to look on the outside on these beautiful companies, they, they, they miss the point, right? Uh, no, oh, they're, this they're is autonomy, this is agility, yeah. so we're going to have anarchy. No, no, no. They're hardcore standardized governance is rock solid down on code level, but it's in a different flavor. It is. Can we elaborate on this? They're going to go to YouTube. They're going to watch one of the old talks by Gustav. Henrik. Henrik or Gustav. Yeah. Yeah. Gustav has a lot to answer for, for that goddamn YouTube video. <laughs> um, the tribes that we all do. Spotify left it, but yeah. everybody's doing tribes. Yeah. Gustav Sabershka. Dude. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I miss those videos. That oh sounds to me. You mean the recent <laughs> podcasts or yeah. some? No, the old ones. No, the ten really old. Ag agility, right? Yeah, agile, autonomous teams. You know, the, the classic Gustav talk that went all over the internet. About how Spotify organizes in squads. And I've only seen the Henrik ones. That's the Henrik ones. I think it's but the Henrik There's a Gustav one. one as well. Okay. But the, there's one missing that people haven't seen. And uh, the reason that it hasn't been broadcasted is that Henrik left Lego, right? Uh, and <laughs> Henrik was, was the megaphone uh, um, that sort of put this Spotify model and the things out there. And yeah. he was... He didn't have a mission. He didn't have an intent to sort of change no. the world in the way that it happened. He, he just was transparent, right? And he's so eloquent that it, you, you yeah. just become mesmerized. And the way by they his... did it with the whole drawing oh, is beautiful. I love Henrik. Um, anyway, there is a very interesting one, which is the later phase of the model when they scaled to a level where they where they found it challenging to coordinate. Mm -hmm. And the only thing, the, one of the strengths of Spotify is the ability to change when things don't work, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so they, this doesn't work with changing to something different. Well, they reorg. Mm -hmm. The answer to everything is reorg. And, and, and at, at, at large Jesus and at small, as, at small mm -hmm. as well. I remember a very successful reorg with just three teams where we couldn't collaborate because the, the technical interfaces and the team interfaces were unaligned. So we pushed the teams into a room and we wrote post-its of everything they owned. And then we clustered the post-its and then we had new lines new and, everybody went. and everybody and it, went away. It, yeah. it was like so, the, a very difficult organizational problems that would have taken years to solve would solve, was solved like in two hours. But, but everybody, Henrik said it himself. It's a disclaimer on all the slides. This is at this current state of time. In Spotify, we change constantly. Yes. Someone seemed to forget the last yes. minute. So, yes. I, I want to put this out there. Every organization is different. Any organization that tries to, quote unquote, implement the Spotify model is going to fail. They aren't yeah. Spotify. They exactly. aren't the people that get employed by Spotify. They aren't the people that go search for jobs at Spotify. They aren't making a music app or, you know, a pod, <laughs> podcast app or... They're not in the audio listening business. Exactly. So stop trying to pigeonhole yourself into somebody else's organizational structure. Do what's right for you. Yeah. And it, we see the, exactly the same with everybody that tries to implement lean, right? Yeah. Scania is one of the exceptions where they actually are succeeded. But, succeeded. but we don't talk about lean. I work at Scania a lot. We talk about the Scania way. Mm. Isn't that interesting? But the thing is that they've probably taken lean. And I'm guaranteeing that they have adopted certain things for themselves. And maybe it is predominantly lean. Maybe it's 90% the book. No, it's, but I, there's it's Scania least, way. Right. It, it's called Scania way. It's our interpretation of what lean means. It is fucking 
good, but it it's works actually worked for Scania. So this is my other problem, is that it's really great to learn from others. This is how we cook, right? You open a recipe book, and maybe the first time you actually follow it word for word, and you actually measure the salt, and you measure the pepper, and you do everything the right way. And then the second time you're going to, oh, pinch of this, pinch of that. Oh, I actually want some paprika in there. Mm. Like, you're supposed to adjust things. Yes. But for some reason, in tech culture, we're like, well, this is how Spotify does it. This is how Google does it. We are automatons, and we are going to do... No but, no, but it's the whole industry's fault because the management consultant is putting fuel on the fire on this as well. And I mean, like, and this is the point, right? We have good ideas. We call it, we call it uh, the Spotify model. And then we talk about architecture. We call it data measure. We talk about all this stuff. So these are great ideas, right? But, but then you need them. to, you need to take them home to your context, your culture, your type of business. Which is, of Absolutely. course, the, the we, other thing uh, is like you're working with enterprise, right? And yeah. very often their cycles are very different. Very different. Or my my better half, Blossom, works in the games industry and has his entire career. He's a games engineer. Yeah. They release something. Well, not all of the companies he works for, but very often this is something that is pressed onto a DVD or quote unquote release now and streamed yes. on a certain date. Yeah. Right. The Christmas release is and a it's, big it's, thing. You cannot miss that release. No, whatever. you can't because that's it. That's your business. Like, how are they going to apply, quote unquote, lean when like you have a drop dead deadline or you might as well close the door to your company's office? I remember some very stressful deadlines at Spotify because Mm -hmm. you have a whole organization that is uh, centered around being agile, taking small steps at the time. And then it comes an important deadline and then you're fried, right? (laughs) It doesn't work. It's really difficult. My, My favorite example, I actually, so again, I'm taking a job and one of the people interviewing me asked a really tough question from a product person, right? I've taken a job as a CPO, like everything in product is lean and no dates and small steps and no deadlines and blah, blah, blah. He's like, talk to me about deadlines. And I was like, <laughs> you realized that this is a real question. Well, this is a real question. And I, you know, I made a joke and I said, you know, it's like putting a product person's feet on the fire. But of course you work towards deadlines. Can, can anyone say GDPR? There was a deadline. <laughs> you can't miss that deadline. We're all in Europe. GDPR was a deadline. You can you can flip that around and say, uh, what's the consequences of missing a deadline? We well, talked exactly about that. In, yes. in some in some cases, the consequences that that something was cancelled, which happened a, a couple of times, and then we lose a lot. In the case of GDPR, missing that particular deadline that's not a problem because Dante's McCoon had not stuffed up yet, so it would be a year before <laughs> someone actually comes along. Right? So it's just it's Years. just an increased risk, like any yeah. other risk. But this is it. So I mean, he and I actually ended up talking about the importance of sometimes, yes, you have a deadline, you work to the deadline, and that becomes one of your key results is to reach that deadline. And it is measurable, and it's still an objective and a key result, and that's okay. But you have all sorts of scenarios, especially when you're working in things like fintech or insurance or whatever, where a deadline is a deadline, a law comes in, you're about to go work for the cops, right? Like, this is a new law, it's on the books, yeah, GDPR didn't staff up for a year, we didn't know that at the time. So you meet the deadline. Well, What I see as a consequence of these hard things is that in in a bunch of of companies that I've been out with, they they see these as very hard limits. Mm -hmm. And then they say, well, in order to be compliant, 
we have to work this way. And then in the box with in order to be compliant with this particular law, they put lots and lots of stuff in, right? Mm -hmm. We can't do DevOps because we have to separate the de developers and the mm -hmm. operations. And then you look at it and, and says, it says, that's not what the compliance says. Mm -hmm. That it only says that there has to be four eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Which is something, something completely, completely different. different. Completely and, different. And, but they're so used to translating these actual requirements into ways of working and organizing, and then they're locked, and th and then they are the the mm -hmm. big tech runs around them, and, and so forth. So if they go back to first principles, which mm -hmm. I know some people are very fond of here, <laughs> <laughs> we are the fans, fanboys of Elon. Don't, no, no. No, don't no. go here. Don't, 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 don't go there. Don't don't go there. Don't we don't like it. I'm writing this up now. We have to go Elon styles. <laughs> the first principle, I like that. But we have so much to cover now. I don't know which way we're going to go here, Anders, because I want to yeah. talk about... We haven't even finished the first topic, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of giving up in some way, but it's okay. Surrender. Uh, <laughs> more beer. More beer. That's no, it. Let, let's try to close just the, the, the whole like career thing. I mean, okay. I, I th you, you mentioned so many things. Um, you did your PhD yep. in human computer interfaces, and you worked at Nokia and Google and Shipstead, and then uh, you worked at Spotify as well, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And uh, was the, after Spotify, did you go to Dreams then? Or was no, it I went to Trinity Mirror Group, which is Reach PLC. They're one of the largest publishers in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, so from publishing to publishing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was their CPO interim because yes. I couldn't move my family back. So CPO UK. chief product, product officer. officer yeah. um, CPO comma interim. <laughs> a comma interim. <laughs> I like my commas. Um, <laughs> but they're London-based and we couldn't move back. Um or we didn't want to move back, I guess. Um, and then I went to Dreams as Chief Product Officer there. Mm. And, and what does Dream do? If you guessed, uh, they are a fintech. Uh, yes. They help people make more out of their money. So it's in the, what I would call, financial well-being sector. Mm. So uh, at its core, the app, when you download it, helps you save money towards goals. Mm. Uh, we also have what we call the anti-debt product in Norway, which means that you can pay back your debt faster. So you reconsolidate it at a lower rate, right. you pay, pay it back faster. Which but are you better. at the core, are you a bank or you're a part no, or you're supporting? We have, banks, yeah. Yeah. we have an underlying, we you have need an Optroy. Yeah. Do you need an Optroy to, to work? Uh, the bank Optroy and like the, the, there's like banking regulated stuff. We're definitely regulated to some extent. We have a securities license, but mm -hmm. we are not a bank. No. So, you're, so a you're, you're a complement to yes. people's financing. Yeah. And right now we're going through a bit of a transition. We've also launched a B2B product in Ukraine, okay. um, mm. which means that some of the core app is now part of your daily banking app. Mm. That's nice. So, so what, do you have an app for that, a web page, or how, how do you uh, work with it? What's yeah, the product? Dreams is an app. Mm. Uh, so you can download it in Sweden. It hooks into whatever bank you use. Um, and then, again, it, it does these little things that we call save hacks. Mm. They're, I would call them like, behavioral tricks. So skip the latte and that three euros oh, goes towards your dream, your goal. So you set a monetary goal and you set uh, a duration, a period of time, and then you use all these little save hacks and you save towards that dream. It works yes. extremely well. For the, I am so going to be gender biased for a moment. For the gentlemen in the room, <laughs> you can pick your favorite sports team, and when they, uh, you know, score a goal or win a game, it puts a little bit of cash into your dream. Mm -hmm. I'm awesome. How was you that for gender bias right there? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's okay. 
of I don't watch sports. I know. Yeah. Actually, I don't either. But I, I yeah, I figured, but I was, you know, I had to get the gender bias in there at some point. <laughs> you like sports, though, can I agree? No? Yeah, I like sports and music. I don't know. No. Is that too? You know, <laughs> you can do, do we do we get one each? No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> I do sports. There you go. Yeah. But speaking more from a UX point of view, did was what was your role mainly at Dreams then at that time? Uh, so chief product officer. Oh, you were product officer. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. So I've. Kind of moved, I guess, from design and research as my career has grown to take responsibility for the entire product organization instead mm-hmm. of yeah. a slice of the product organization. And and now now we move fast into you know, what's how far is the CPO involved in setting the direction for the whole company when yeah. you're an app? Uh, it depends on how vocal your founders are. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I think it depends on the maturity of the company. I think. Again, the digital product so often is only part of the puzzle of the entire organization. So the company that I'll be starting with in August is called ManyPets.com. At their core, they offer pet insurance, but they also do pet well-being and pet care. So medicine, um, video vet, et cetera. Is that Swedish Swedish based? Yeah, they're headquartered in London, but ManyPets.com exists in Sweden. So yes, if you have a puppy or a kitten. We do, actually. You should should, should use us now. but if you think about it, the digital experience is only part of it. The insurance policy that we're selling you, whether or not your pet's medicine gets delivered on time, if it's not delivered, can you call the customer support team? All of these things are part of that product. So the team that I am lucky enough to now be able to manage is only part of that equation. I'm not setting the insurance policies. No. Nope. I'm not partnering with the pharmaceutical suppliers no. to get the deliveries in. So I'm not manning customer support calls. So, so the strategy is set or direction, and then what do we get down? Is that how Kind of. Like, I mean, if we want to be the, the place where you come for your pet's well-being, then what kind of things do we need to have in place, both digitally and non-digitally? So um, I don't know, maybe at some point, I'm literally just thinking, God, please don't fire me before I've started. Um, But maybe we want to start a marketplace for healthy, eco-friendly pet products, shampoos, food, et cetera, because, I mean, this is a huge ecological footprint, right? Mm -hmm. But yet you have all sorts of local producers now, even in Sweden, which are looking at products for pets, food, shampoos, healthcare that are eco-friendly, that are locally produced, that are not made from... um, uh, animal meat, but actually bug proteins. Maybe we want to do that because again, we're your one-stop shop for pet care. But again, maybe we want to be a marketplace that's very thin, very. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I, I don't know. Th- that's the. I'm trying to understand what the, I mean, since we have a small dog and cats and whatnot, and, and we certainly see all the trouble that can happen. You know, when uh, pets get sick or whatnot. You know, mm-hmm. and so many things. Yeah. What is the, uh, I try to understand, it, it's partly from an insurance point of view, but it, it is. also so about... So you get like, an insurance policy, so instead of the insurance yeah. that you use now, you would switch to them. Uh, yeah. It's all digital. Yeah. They will cover pre-existing conditions, so it's a lot easier to file a claim. Mm-hmm. You don't. You can do the claims all digitally. Right. You don't have to... And it's also product-based, so you can buy, buy or find eco-friendly products? No, or, not yet. Uh, that was okay. my brilliant idea of ah, the future, okay. which again is, please don't fire me before I start. Um, I don't know. I okay. don't know where we'll go. I haven't started yet, so, so I don't... Today it's know. mainly insurance-based. It's exciting. Yes. Okay. Insurance I'm, I'm, and um, pet medicine. Pet medicine. And when uh, Lydia's evil 
big data mine comes along, <laughs> they will track your GPS location and then vary the insurance cost based on how close to the roads you are. But can, can I steal another question? What's the relationship between CPO and CTO if you're this sort of startup digital company? CTO is a chief talking officer. That would be me, right? Um, so my partner in crime right now um, at Dreams uh, is named Dida. I adore and he's amazing and wonderful. I mean, he's the tech genius. I, yeah. I don't understand our stack the way that he does. Yeah. So we recently, when we switched to B2B, um, we basically dropped the old stack and really rebuilt on the new stack because you don't have to take all that baggage and the history of a consumer-facing product when you can slim down a whole bunch of stuff because it's going to be sitting as part of an integrated full banking app. I was super nervous. Like he had to talk me off the ledge like every day for a week. Like, oh, we're going to throw everything out. We're not throwing everything out, Lydia. I don't know how he tolerated me. Did I, if you ever watch this, thank you for tolerating me. Um, so they are, they are in symbiotic. In an ideal world, they are. I mean, they are part of a yin and yang. It, it's great if a designer and a product person come up with something really valuable for the business and the user. But if no one is there to, to build the code, then all you have is a Figma prototype or an Envision prototype. It's, it's clickable. You can test it, but it's not there. At the same time, you can write the code, but if there's no thought behind the business value or the user value, then you just you can't have one without the other. Well put. This is this happens at, at every level, right? The, the CPO is is sort of has a task to make somebody externally happy, and if you zoom in in a team, a product owner has a task to make someone outside of the team happy, whether it's a user or an internal yeah. stakeholder. But then the CTO or the architects or whatever uh, have a, a task to make sure that you do that, this in, in a sustainable manner so that you are scalable, able, efficient, yeah, or whatever is important for, for your yeah. uh, company and, and are able to continue doing so and managing the technical non-operational risks and so forth. Is it, is it every one? It can be one person or very seldom so, one person? No, I do know companies that do the CTPO. Um, really? I know companies where the CPO manages the tech team or the CTO manages the product team. I recently got um, asked uh, where I think product marketing should sit. Like, I am completely agnostic. Again, I fundamentally believe adjust to what works for your company yeah. at the time yeah. because it's right and you have the right people in place. And screw what everybody else is doing. Because if we all looked over our shoulder and like, I have to do exactly what they're doing, none of us would get anywhere. Like, learn from what others have done. I think the CPO-CTO model works as companies scale really well because your teams are going to scale, right? And you don't want organizations that have, like, seven layers of structure in them. So you want to keep it as flat as possible for obvious reasons. And obviously, you're going to have middle management and all the rest of it. But there is a, a product function which includes research and design and product management. And then there is a CTO function or a technology function which includes data engineers and front-end engineers and back-end engineers, and depending on what your company is, maybe database engineers. And mm. I can name like five other engineering functions. So in what's, ops, what's the example. new role that you will have mm. at, at that company? Was it manypets.com? Manypets.com, yes. uh, also CPO. CPO. Mm. And I must say before, you know, the joke I said about, you know, CTO being um, chief talking officer, I stole that from uh, Record Futures CTO, oh, no. Stefan Trevi. Uh, I nice. love that he said that. So no pun or um, 
anything else meant. I, I took it personal, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I talked too much. But okay, so now you're moving into a new company. I think that's an interesting question and topic potentially in itself. So, so you're coming into this company and you want to help them uh, yes. from a CPO point of view. Absolutely. And um, then you can, I mean, you have your background that you have with the uh, human computer interface and UX perspective, uh, but mm-hmm. obviously much broader as well. And I guess you want to also scale the company in different mm-hmm. ways. How do you approach that? What's your thinking now when coming into the new organization in trying to help them in the best I, way? Yeah, I, in that's the a great question. So I have the same approach to entering any new organization. I have to spend a, a, some amount of time, hopefully not too long, just listening. I, mm. I don't know what they've already tried. I can go in there with 100 billion biases and opinions, but I don't know where they've been. And they have a history and they've been successful. So first thing, feet on the ground, listen. What's working? What's not working? I have this little exercise that I do that's keep, develop, drop um, that Valerie Colton from Shipstead taught me. Valerie. Keep, what, keep, what? Keep, develop, drop. Keep, develop, So keep, what's working? What's working? Keep? Yeah, keep it. What? Develop. Things that are kind of working, but we need to massage them. They need to be changed. They they need to be developed. Drop, like, this shit sucks. We need to stop. Thank you. Keep, keep, develop, Develop, drop. drop. I'm going to take that home tomorrow. KDD. KDD. Do you have KDD? It's also an AI conference. But so okay. it's just like, it's what I'm listening for, like, because I'll talk to the people who will now be part of my organization or I, I will be lucky enough to be their manager. And they'll tell me like, this is really great. Mm. This, eh, uh, that's all right. Mm. It's a develop. Mm. I hate this. Okay. Well, that's a drop. <laughs> I might get them together in a room. We might do that kind of a post-it note exercise. I actually remember doing that with Val at Shipstead. Um, I think it's a really great way of doing that. I didn't have that structure before. I've always approached it in a similar way, but Val gave me that nice structure for it. Love you, Val. Um, it, for me, entering any new space, it's about learning first and mm. asking 100 billion naive questions and hoping right. nobody thinks I'm a complete idiot. And then from there, starting to develop ideas and opinions with the team. I honestly feel that as a manager, I'm providing a service, and that service is to help guide and mentor and take away barriers and sometimes give tough feedback. But it is really about, like, what can we do better? It's also working with the other executives in the company or the other managers in the company saying, how do we want to scale? Mm. Because one of the ways we could scale is take the products we have now and release it to everywhere. Mm. Okay, let's localize the hell out of this, translate everything, change all the images, do all the localization. Yeah, geoscaling. Let's just go nuts. Another way is like, hey, we've got some really good markets. Let's mature them. Let's add these things in. So my little marketplace idea. (laughs) Uh, Again, just grabbing that out because it came up during interviews. Um, But I don't know yet, right? I'm not there yet. I don't know what they've thought of before. Maybe they've tried the marketplace idea and it was a complete disaster. Okay, there goes that one. Or maybe not. Or maybe they've tried geo scaling before. And you know what? They tried to launch market XYZ and it was a disaster. Well, why? So... First step on the ground is learn. Ships that had this uh, geo-market scaling idea to the extreme because uh, Blockit was so mature that it was fairly easy to scale to a new country. So they had this team called Shotgun, which just like threw it out to to new (laughs) markets. Some hit, some miss, never know. (laughs) France and Spain was big, right? Spain is big, yeah, but but they threw it out to like Ghana. Did did even France start like a Shotgun approach? Yeah, so (coughs) Le Bancon was a Blockit clone to begin with. It was literally block of code, burn down a DVD and installed on local servers. <laughs> I'm completely serious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, cool. they really forked whenever the clones are like, 
Good luck. <laughs> so that's the example of an uncoordinated company. <laughs> and Russia had a clone, not a real shotgun uh, thing, right? Russia has a veto. Yeah, a veto. Yeah, I actually worked with that. Uh, in, yeah, long time ago. Anyway, fun to see. I know also if we speak more like from a leadership point of view, and I know in ships that, for example, you, you had a really big team underneath, right? Yeah. Uh, um, when I left, it was uh, well over 120 people. Um, mm. But when I started, it was me. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing scaling. For sure. Did you get to recruit them all or did you get uh, to buy so some, a company? <laughs> yeah, I just bought them all. Uh, some was recruitment, some was reorgs. Uh, so originally we started with the small core team and I hired a bunch of people and they hired a bunch of people, but then we also had reorgs and then at the end of it, it was a really large team. Mm -hmm. That's another company that had reorg as a strategy. <laughs> a lot of reorgs. There was a lot of reorgs. Do you have a favorite like um, principle or what's your best practices, so to speak, when it comes to leadership? How do you build teams? Listen to them. They will tell you what they need. If you can't listen to what they need and you can't respond to it, you, or at least you can't stand up and be honest and say, okay, well, I hear you, but we can't do that. Mm. Then you're going to be a shit leader. Mm. Your your entire role is to, to listen to your team because you're not there doing the wireframe. You're not there building the backlog. Mm. So what the hell do you know? Mm. They should tell you, and then you should challenge them. Mm. But to, in order to be able to challenge, you first have to listen. But I love it. can I challenge it? Or I, yes. I, actually, <laughs> I, I'm not going to challenge it. I'm going to challenge, is that leadership when we come from maybe um, – I promise not to use the Tayloristic word too much. I think you said it like 15 times. <laughs> I 50 said it 15 times. Time. <laughs> times. But I, I don't know okay. how to phrase it because sometimes leadership from an enterprise point of view or something, you know, it's ingrained in, in, a, in a different way. Like the, the leader knows the best, the leader points with his whole hand. And, and you are talking about servant leadership or may, I, is that I, I, servant I, um, leadership? I do believe in servant leadership, but servant leadership sometimes is sometimes the best servant you can be. Yeah. Say, there's the exit. Yeah. Hello, fire. Yeah. Exit. So servant leadership is not like I do whatever my team tells no. me to. So I think this is also misunderstood, like that this is such a white and black. It, it's not. I agree. So I don't. So. This might be my take on things yeah. and it might be my personality. So again, please take it as just my humble opinion. But I don't, I don't think that the leader does always know the best. No. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. So if you're in an operating theater and there is a neurosurgeon, and this is a human being who's been trained in neurology and neurosurgery for 20 some years, and then there's me and we're doing brain surgery, who are you going to listen to? I'm going to be listening to the neurosurgeon. How about you? Okay. Donald Trump didn't. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there's Donald and we all love the Donald. And then there's leadership. And then there's leadership. On the other hand, if the neurosurgeon is operating on a tumor in the brain, he will have an oncologist and an oncological specialist standing next to him. Yeah. So they can really. So they can work together. So who's the expert in that room? I think the simplest metaphor is, is in sports, right? You have a team and then you have a coach that is the leader yeah, and nice. the, the leader should never go in and take the ball and, and do whatever, right? That, that's not, that is the real metaphor. The, the, yes. the, yes. His, the coaches and the leader's task is to make the perfect conditions for the team to actually do the that. thing. That, that's a very simple metaphor. So, so, and, and I think that is whole so true because a, a coach needs to understand 
my team, are they a Champions League material or are they Allsvenskan material? Yes. And basically, maybe we should not play like Barcelona as a style because it doesn't really suit us. Mm-hmm. It Absolutely. goes completely together also that you, you can't pick a Champions League organizational model or a style of playing football if, if you're, you're not, if you're not League Champions League team. I also think as a leader, you're, you're coming into an organization hopefully with I use the toolbox analogy. We're using a lot of analogies. (laughs) Sorry. So my toolbox has tools from all of the different roles that I've had and all the different experiences I've had. And maybe I have seven different kinds of hammer and 50 kinds of screwdriver and whatever. And I'm coming in with that toolbox. And my team is coming to me with questions and concerns and problems. And I'm opening up that toolbox and saying, how about this one? Do you think this will work? Let's try this one. That is leadership. We're going to try it. We're going to see if it works. If it doesn't work, we'll come back and we'll brainstorm and maybe my box will have another tool we can try. And if not, maybe we can create a new one. To me, that is leadership. That is what a coach does. The coach puts on thinking like NBA or basketball. The coach is like producing a game playing. They're trying to figure out like, okay, we're going to have these three people in the field doing this formation to go take this ball across the court and it's going to be Jordan dunking it. Of course, it's going to be Jordan Jordan. dunking it. Uh, I just finished watching that Netflix series. Um, But the idea is that you've got the coach sort of trying to formulate these plays and the players trying them out, developing them, saying keep or drop. Coach, that that play did not work. Drop it. Or coach, it kind of worked. Can we, you know, I think maybe we need to change positions here. I think football would have been a better analogy than basketball thinking now. But I like basketball. It's only because I just finished watching the Netflix series. Um, so, the Jordan. Yeah, with the Jordan. The, what was it called? Um, I don't know. Anyway, it was, it was all very nostalgic it. because I lived in Chicago through that entire period. So I was like, oh. Lydia, uh, Lydia. Yeah. Oh, look at you. And you're, oh, my God. Oh, those are classic. Um, me and my Adidas are now envious. Uh, Okay, run DMC Adidas. It's all good. Um, that would derail a bit. We totally derail. <laughs> you got me. But ideally, again, the coach or the leader is formulating those plays and trying them out with their players, with their team, and the team is giving that feedback. The coach is not taking the ball away and trying to dribble it across the court or kick it into the goal. There is also uh, like an upper layer of, of leadership, which is the the structure uh, for for like uh, communications and right. coordinating between teams and so forth, so that the teams, uh, not as not the individuals, but the teams, get mm-hmm. reasonable conditions mm-hmm. for doing their job. Absolutely. And and I, I missed uh, recommending one of Hendrik's videos before, so I'm going to pick mm-hmm. that up, thread up mm-hmm. again. And that, I think it might have been the last Spotify video he ever made. I think it was an Agile in South Africa mm-hmm. or something. Uh, there, <laughs> because there's a, a thing that Spotify tried out, which is called DIB, uh, data, insight, uh, beliefs, beliefs mm-hmm. and bets. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the... In most interesting part of Spotify's organization. So I would recommend to people to, to find Dibs. that. Yeah, Data, Dib. insights, beliefs. Bets. 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 And we mentioned Henrik so many times. So I guess we mean Henrik Nibar here. Nibar, right? yes. yes. The, the, one only, ha- the one and only Henrik. Yeah, yeah, not from this Henrik. Not me. Probably <laughs> 50 Henrik. Sorry, it's not me. Yeah. Is he um, still at Lego? No. Uh, I think he, he's, at, he's doing, uh, he's at Mojang now. We need Which to get Henrik here. Lego. Yeah. Get free Lego. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Okay, but I think that's an important point. I mean, one is the leadership, you know, how, how do you basically guide the people in, in the teams to, to basically make the best they can do in, in some way. But it's also about, you know, recruitment and how to basically build the teams as well um, and, and find the right mix, etc. Do, do you have any thoughts about that? Or what's yeah, your... I do something that's called, um, sometimes like called like star charts or radar diagrams. So mm. every field has sort of dots on that radar diagram. So let's say you're mapping your, uh, I'm going to pick on UX. Uh, no, you know what? Let's pick on product. I always pick on UX. Uh, mm -hmm. So a product manager has to have some insights background or, you know, at least be able to process business insights. They have to have um, some strategic background. They have to be able to plan, create backlogs. And all of these are points on this sort of chart. So let's say your team is really strong in the analytics part and really strong in the planning part, but not so strong in the strategic part. So maybe you want to hire in someone into that team that's a little bit higher on that, but a little bit lower on those other scales. And what you get is sort of like almost um, a fingerprint of your team and their strengths and weaknesses. And then you hire to try and stretch out those strengths. Like and weaknesses. the radar spider diagram. Yeah, spider diagram, radar diagram, star diagram. They have a hundred. But, but it's just, that's what we mean. Like we yeah. go in a couple of different directions and we yes. see from yes. zero to ten. Yes, exactly. And I do that with my teams and I do that holistically and I try and make sure that like also various, because we do work in cross-functional teams with Spotify mm. calls squads, but cross-functional teams, they're also staffed in this way. So if mm. we have a really, really senior, really good engineering manager on that squad or cross-functional team, you want to make sure that they're partnered with really good and strong business side product, really strong design side. Mm. If it's a younger team and they have a little bit more stretch space, then, you know, try and match those people together, which is, again, where that CTO, CPO mm. symbiotic relationship comes and, in. And this is... Team here is for me. Are we talking the cross-disciplinary team? Yes, cross-functional. From the data scientist or data engineer to the product to the so business, there, I all think the way. So. All it the way. It depends on the company, right? So there's a lot of specialist skill sets like data science and UX research often mm -hmm. that do not get always embedded in each squad because if it's a really it's young startup, many. it's too many. Well, we're expensive. Exactly. It's hard. It's hard to pay for people like Lala or me to do just data science or just UX research for every so the single core, So you have a core balance, but then some roles, they, they're kind of expensive or hard to find. They're hard to find. They're expensive. So very often they're shared across multiple cross-functional teams. But at its base, I believe that a cross-functional team needs to have one UXer, usually a designer. Yeah one product person and a few engineers. And that depends on the kinds of engineers or how many, but ideally that cross-functional team should at least be able to run an experiment on its own. That's, it should be able to mock something up and release But that's it for, for like user-facing uh, user product. User-facing or digital, yeah. with a digital backend. Absolutely, because you can have entire teams that are backend facing where it's just a technical yeah. PM and engineers like, you might have maybe an information architect that floats between the teams, but you don't really have a UI. That you have a data product, you have a recommender system. system. Right. So maybe you have an information architect that comes and, you know, leans in with, but, the it, but it's kind of natural is, is your, whatever you're doing, who's your customer is your yes. customer, the actual yes. user. Uh, okay. I internal or ex customer customer or, is, or, or, or is your user and a different system, right? Yes. But if we're thinking about sort of the basics, then you're always thinking of like Marty Kagan's book, which is okay. So a user facing product, an mm. app, a website, Yes. there's a, a UX person, usually a designer, a product person and X number of engineers. Mm. So. so that's one way to build across functional teams that could be part of the product or the tech organization or whatnot. What about more? And that's another question. How do you divide like product and tech? I think mm -hmm. that's an interesting question in itself. 
But what about more long-term kind of questions, like research questions, et cetera? Um, you can, if you take more data scientists, but a proper data scientist, if we call it that, um, that is trying to to tackle more scientific questions, long-term questions. Um, do you think they should also be part of the each team, or should they? Is there a need for centralized or? So I do think that certain functions, especially in younger organizations where you have smaller, quote-unquote, <coughs> autonomous and accountable teams, you will have certain functions that go across. Mm. So right now at Dreams, we have a central UX research function. Okay. We simply cannot afford to have an embedded researcher per team. We also have a central data insights function right. because we cannot embed a data scientist in each team or a data analyst in each team. It's just not physically possible for a small startup with 80 people. Like you just you can't. It's too expensive. To But it, even for a larger is. organization, I mean, is it always good to embed? I mean, let me give a contra, uh, like a contrary example. I, I know in Spotify, for example, we wanted and, and I think we should have, for example, data scientists in the cross-functional squads that we do have. A problem that can occur, though, if you have a strong product owner, for example, in that team is that the data scientists or data analysts that you have there, you know, are basically fighting the product owner and they have their deadlines, you know, and that they need to finish on the sprint to be able to deliver something and the and basically come in conflict with them. And then it's hard for the data analysts um, to do their work. So uh, I have two fundamental things I'm going to say, and then I'm going to hand over to you because I think your opinion is more important here. Uh, you're no. the more important person today. No, I'm not. <laughs> uh, I deny that. <laughs> Nothing is ever wrong or right. I'm going to go back to the mm. first principle, which different things are right and wrong for different organizations and different snapshots of time. Yeah. So there is no right or wrong. Any recommendation I can give is like, again, my toolbox. I've seen this work in these situations in these kinds of times. The other thing to say is, again, there's always room for short-term and long-term projects. Right. Always. And if an organization gets so stuck in endless short-term projects, they will fail. Yes. If they're always only looking at long-term projects where everything takes three years to ever they see the light fail. of day, they will fail. But you can't have one or the other. You have to have a mix of both. So horizons to be able to manage short-term, mid-term Long term. Long term. Is it three horizons? I think it's three it's usually horizons. Three horizons, yes. Yeah, I agree. I, I've been told that we misinterpret them. There's a good YouTube video about that. Now you. So uh, agree on, on there's, uh, there's no, no, nothing completely right or wrong. What you, the example that you bring up is one sort of extreme where it tilts too much to, to the cross functional, where the, where the uh, perhaps junior data scientist is too alone out there right yeah and uh, so what can you do to balance that and and then then we come to the matrix organization you have this people belonging to what we in spotify call the chapter and when they're out in their squad and which is uh just a regular matrix organization right yeah. uh, and that can balance things up uh if you look at the other end of the spectrum where you have the functional, purely functional organization. Uh, I've seen that a lot in, in the companies that I'm at. You have a bunch of sci data scientists sitting in a corner. Mm. At first they have no data and they are very unhappy. And then someone pours them a bucket of static data mm. and then they build some models and then they uh, come up with these models and say, well, now we have a model. Can we deploy it? Um, well, Who's the customer? Know. We uh, <laughs> ship it over the, the, the wall to, to the developers and they 
they look at it and rewrite it in Java and then they ship it over the wall to the operations people yeah. and so forth. I have to steal we do it. this out yeah, I have it's to okay. steal one of your terms. I get goosebumps. Now. You <laughs> said it so <laughs> but I, you, you, Then you get goosebumps <laughs> for the wrong reasons. You get, you, it's like when someone do, does a choke. Yeah. That's and, not what I mean with goosebumps. And <laughs> I believe that this, this isolated data scientists mm. have been much more common Yes. As, as an anomaly than the embedded ones, because the embedded ones at least learn yeah. from the real product in real life. I mean, I think the hybrid solution is the best one. And if you don't have any data people in the cross-functional team, of course, that will lead to you don't log the proper things and you don't have the right thinking and you don't do the AP testing right and, and whatnot. I mean, so many problems of this will occur then. But it's, I think the same can be said, you know, for the other way, if you don't have any long-term thinking, um, then uh, that would also be a problem. And if it's too driven by product team that may have their sprints to deliver on, they will also have issues with that. But and there's probably also a higher order problem. If the product team is so stressed to deliver every sprint at a certain time in a certain way, yeah. then maybe we have a higher order question to ask yeah. the organization. Why is that going on? Why is the product team not also thinking about a slightly longer term vision right. outside of the immediate yes. sprint? Exactly. But then, of course, the balancing of this team changes if your core feature is an algorithmic feature. Yes. So if, if the core product of this team is the recommendation, of course, there are data sciences left, right and center on that recommender system versus if you have an analyst who's helping you to get deeper insight on how the product works for to tweak it. But but your core product does not include the algorithm. It will. Software was eating the world like Algorithm. 15 years so ago. Data is now eating the world. Algorithms will eat the and world. 15 years from now, AI will be eating the world. We're not there yet. No, it's not okay. hasn't delivered yet. No, I and so this okay, is good. What you said now, I believe in 100%. So right now, you don't need a data scientist as part team of the core product necessarily. It depends on the product. It depends on the product. But Lali's hinting, we said software, you know, Algorithms will be in every single core product, most likely, or not. That, that, that's a statement I mean, for you, to Lydia. Some, to some extent, they are, aren't they? So inside the, I mean, like not insight on it, how it works, but actually part of the it product. Doesn't need to be much intelligence in the algorithm, no, but people doesn't. expect the information to be there. Yes. Two, two years ago, yes. I had this shopping experience at IKEA and wrote a blog post about it, and in they they disappointed me in every step <laughs> of this shopping journey, right? And it was never that it, it wasn't smart enough. It was that it was stupid because the the e-commerce service forgot information that I along already had along the way. That right? I already you pushed. already know my address, right? You already I've already told you I want to go to the shop in Barkaby, which is closest to me and so forth. And so the the there is a expectation Mm. That that you will have that the information will be correct, not necessarily smart. No AI, no machine learning, no algorithms. No, just that the information. The information you, you yeah. expect it to flow, right? Absolutely. So Absolutely. Every, I have to to their defense, to IKEA's defense, I have to say that since my blog post, they redesigned the whole things, and they it's now a really smooth experience. Oh, right. Yeah. So they maybe read your blog. Maybe. I don't know. And I, I know IKEA is getting um, some enforcement from a really good person soon as well. So, no, so there But I honestly, I don't, I can't think of any applications or software that we use right now that don't have some of that embedded already. So there you go. So the team has grown with the 
Oh, I mean, for God's sake, my, my refrigerator knows what temperature it is. Yeah. It self-monitors. Yeah. I don't have to defrost it. So I'm old enough to remember having to monitor the temperature in the refrigerator manually. There was a thermometer. And if it grew too much ice in the freezer, you did something to the temperature. I can't remember if you lowered it or raised it. I, whatever. I'm going to have to call my dad. Um, <laughs> but, uh, who does that? But, cool. but sincerely, I mean, this is intelligence built into your fridge. You are no longer manually going in and going, is it two degrees? But we used to do that. We used to do that in my childhood. Yeah. Not even in my childhood. In my, like, 20s, we still did that at my parents' so fridge. I'm, I'm glad that you have good appliances. Mine is really smart, and it's supposed to defrost itself, but it's currently <laughs> leaking water. And, and the dishwasher doesn't have a physical button anymore. So, so it's stuck in some kind of program, and it doesn't have a control-out-delete button. So, so I'm stuck in the Internet of shit hell. <laughs> we also we got one of those uh, robot, um, not vacuum cleaners, what do you call them, lawnmowers. Uh, we call it Lancelot because all of our stuff has names. And uh, Milton, my better half, who is an engineer, realized that he could hack the interface and he could program it. Mm. So for years, he was planning on hacking <laughs> into our lawnmower and reprogramming it. I don't know what to do. That sounds really fun, actually. Yeah, see. For what know. purpose? I have. <laughs> because you can. Them, like, because you need purpose. Because it's fun. Yeah, we call it happy engineering, right? He never did, and now we have to upgrade to another one. But for years, like every summer, he's like, oh, I was going to program that. I'm like, program it to do what? Well, I can. <laughs> like, well, for what? <laughs> I understand him completely. It's, it's perfect. <laughs> I had a friend who bought one of these in the 90s, the, the first ones that came oh, wow. out. They costed like 20, mm -hmm. 30K or something. Uh, but they understood their uh, audience because mm -hmm. they came with it with a cd with a developer's kit right yeah. so of course you know when we visited him he was standing in a corner like, eh, 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 eh. <laughs> completely stuck <laughs> cool the time is flying away and we have like 15 minutes or something left but um i'd like to move a bit more into philosophical topics and more long-term thinking and, and if we just connect a bit to what you already spoke about quite a lot and i mean both of you lala and lydia have such an awesome experience from Google, Spotify, and other shipstep and so much more. So I think the question of AI divide that we touched a number of times is, is really interesting. And to, you know, what we mean with that is that, you know, some companies, the few tech giants of US and China, you know, like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, and so many more, they are spending so much time trying to use data in different ways so they are very much ahead. Uh, the question is a bit how much and uh, is there a chance for the rest of us to catch up in some way? Do we have to catch up? Can we go to, can we leapfrog? Mm. So what that, is, yes, so a good one. If we go back to my example of the people that I was doing user testing with in Nairobi in Kenya, they didn't try to catch up with my, my 50, 60, 70, 80 words a minute. Mm. I don't know how fast I type. I type damn fast as fast as my other half, but I type fast. Why do they have to catch up with me? Mm. They leapfrogged me. If they we, type up buckload faster well, on if, their phone. If we look back in history, perhaps we can, we can uh, draw some conclusions, right? What, what, what technical revolutions have we had in the past that, uh, that really affected everything? Well, we had the internet. Mm -hmm. um, do we need the internet or can we leapfrog? I would probably need to figure the internet out, right? We had computers, personal computers. Do we need personal computers or can we leapfrog? Well, to some degree, we can leapfrog to the phones, phone, but there which is, is, which is a, a, a Linux yes. computer, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so some things you can leapfrog and some things some will things change can, yeah. life forever. 
So, I mean, I isn't like Africa? I mean, we had the, the landline, so to speak, when it comes to the phone network, and they basically could skip that and just jump, jump to the cellular to networks. Yeah, so that's the implementation. From right. a user perspective, they provide the same service. Right, yes. exactly. It's but you can leapfrog not in the way you, in those areas, but in mm-hmm. other areas potentially, exactly. then, right? So I think that exactly the kinds of companies like, well, you're setting up a service company, basically. You're going to provide a massive agency service of it's not just the data pipelines, but it's also the questions that you're asking your data. Mm. But that's a way for a small company to leapfrog over creating an entire data infrastructure in-house. Yes. Uh, I think the best analogy that I have is the guy who started FedEx. Mm. He, uh, he submitted his business model uh, to his professor in Yale, and the, and the professor said, this is crap, will never work. See... Mm. Great, right? and then he started FedEx, uh, and that turned that was a new business model within transportation, right? Mm-hmm. Because it transformed transportation into a service. Mm-hmm. So you don't need your own car, you don't need your own driver, and so forth. And as any area expands, data, AI, whatever, we will see this these changes in business model pop up, and they will look re- really weird at start. And to be honest, I'm really fumbling my way ahead with this business model. I know how the collaboration will work and how the technical will work. Um, what do we charge? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm lost. No wait. I, this is this is chronic. <clears throat> Billions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm eager, you know. You're not helping. <laughs> but 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 back to the. But how do we look at the AI? De- is there an AI divide to be worried about? Because I am worried about from the fundamental, more societal point of view. Uh, because you can talk about the AI divide also around what happens when everybody gets ris- disrupted by someone else, versus we have uh, companies that manage to first principle to reinvent themselves. I mean, like even if you're talking about tr- traditional enterprise. So you mean if we survive the energy crisis, All the this. climate crisis, uh, the fact that Trump might be president again <laughs> in four years crisis. Medical crisis. The medical crisis, Putin taking over the world crisis, then you can worry about that. I think it's the opposite. I think this comes further before. <laughs> I think this comes before the, uh, fi- uh, you know. I think they're all related, actually. I think they're related, they even. Kind of they're actually related. Look at it from a, at it from a world risk perspective. We have uh, sort of cataclysmic risks to the world when we have centers of power, like nu- nuclear yes. uh, weapons, this for example. This is the point I'm that, coming with. That was a very high risk to the world during the Cold War when there was... The power was centralized in a few places. So if some radio officer in the Soviet Union hadn't said, oh, this looks like a false positive, mm-hmm. we, we none of us would bad. be here right it, now. Something like that. Um, and with AI, we have the risk of having these yes. centers of power. Yes. yes. So we need to mitigate that risk by spreading out the competence so that we can do not centralized power with 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 inherently evil companies like Facebook and Palantir and and so forth and spread it out uh, so that we get have the understanding in all, and can regulate it before it's too late I mean, right? this is uh, this is maybe the best well put point of my view <laughs> someone has done because I'm not so worried about that someone is 
better. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about that they're getting so far ahead that they become the superpower. So I'm, I'm more worried about us as, as the yes. rest that we need to basically shape up or do something. I think the more you spread it out. Yes. So I think the thing that I'm worried about most is actually if you centralize any power in any one or two organizations, yes. you automatically add all sorts of interesting prejudices and biases yes. based on that organization yes. and whatever it does. Yes. So if all of shopping is owned by Amazon.com in the U.S., then there is no choice and that's it. What they give you is what you get. This is scary. That is scary. Too. I think it is scary. So any monopoly is scary. So to Lala's point, the more you spread it out, and it doesn't mean that you have to be as good as somebody else no. doing the exact same thing, but you have to be good at doing something else with that data. You need to be relevant. At part. I mean, like, it's you like, need, yes. we, we, I, I usually, in, in my speaks, we ha- I've talked about, you know, we, have, we are in the macro life cycle of the ag- agricultural society, and then there's a pivot to the industrial society, and we're, now we have a, a, a pivot to the data and AI software first age somewhere. Absolutely. And, and basically, we now have some superpowers that are sort of already on the growth side of, of that micro life cycle, where a lot of the part of the world is maturity stage of the, of the, they haven't done the pivot yet. Mm-hmm. They're still chasing efficiencies, but in the old approach. So they are, they went through the pioneering stage of industrialization. Now in the mature stage, we talk about efficiencies, but we're doing the cheese grater efficiency style, uh, separation of tasks, you know, all that. The thing is that you also we have need to, to flip. A lot do, of companies need to flip. But you also have to understand the context of some of those other countries and cultures. We live in Sweden. Yeah. We have no fucking problems. I'm sorry. What problems do we have? No, that's true. But we don't. No one's killing us. I'm not going hungry. My child goes to a great school for free. I heard that like, in terms of killing statistics, we're in the middle of, of uh, European statistics. But that got spun in media. Really? So that everybody's really scared now. That, Great. That, that, that was the too, level of problems so that we have. Uh, my so death, lives death, in shooting, death shootings by gangs. I saw that statistic. Is that what you mean? Okay. Yeah. Can we all look? You're on a computer. Can you look up the death statistics for gangling shootings in Chicago? In a given yeah, yeah. You can actually put this on the podcast I, as well. Uh, uh, can I just put this? In, yeah. Like, but can put, I just put please in, put it in perspective? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I mean, we live in Sweden. Yeah. But you know, there are actually. So I don't want to touch on Sweden, like, but there the are problems of the world and yeah. the data. Yeah, I think the data and access to data and control of data is a huge problem. I'm not belittling it. But when you look at countries that are struggling to allow their populations to survive past the age of one yeah. and have a infant mortality rate yeah. that is literally a hundred times higher than our gangling shooting rate at, at a 10 year, yeah. you know, whatever that's, interval. That's perspective. That's you, perspective. Yeah. So I do True. think that there True. are challenges that those countries first have to meet for themselves before they can even look at something like that. True. And I now fully we're, agree with we're that. touching on the the forces that sort of drive me as a person in what I've been doing for the last seven years or so. If you look at the most like data mature companies in Sweden, we're looking at Spotify and we're looking at King. And music is great. Computer games are great, but they actually don't change the world all that much. But we do have companies here in Sweden lots of them with Scandinavian values that I really respect and would like to preserve and that do lots of 
bloody good things out there, like the H&Ms and Ikeas who, who work with their supply chain to make the world outside of Sweden better, like Volvo that gave away the the patent to, to the seatbelt for free, right? Mm-hmm. These are the companies with, with Scandinavian values that I want to survive in the face of, of Amazon and Tesla and so forth. And that is what is driving me personally. Mm. So now I need, just need to find the humble company that realized that they need some help. And that is bloody hard. So you just looked it up. So what is it? 1,298 in Chicago in a given year? That's Chicago. (laughs) So the population of greater Chicago is the same as the population of Sweden. Mm. Cool, but I think you know also it's, it's, it's one question about democracy, uh, democracy in in, in a com- in country, and it's also about you know the economics and having actually Swedish companies and European companies being able to survive. And I think we we have a number of really good examples of tech companies in Sweden, like Spotify, King, Truecaller, and uh, Minecraft and Skype and so forth. But if you look at you know what is the cloud company in Europe? Can you name single big? cloud company in Europe that is anywhere close to what they have in US and China? Well, OVH Cloud had a really big data center that could fire. (laughs) (laughs) OVH Cloud is is a French cloud 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 providers. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, we're really proud of Volvo and really proud of IKEA and and, and all the other companies that we have in Sweden. But what will happen if they can't catch up, if they can't perhaps leapfrog, as you said? Will it really be there in 10 years? So I honestly think that there is still a physical world that we inhabit. I'm sorry. Yeah. Last time I checked, I still couldn't check into the matrix. Uh, not that <laughs> I want to. I no. would miss hugs and real food. Um, so the Volvos, the Ikeas, the Electroluxes of the world, I even if you're only renting the Hoover or the, sorry, it's not Hoover, it's a vacuum cleaner. Um, yeah. If you're only renting the vacuum cleaner, someone still produce the physical artifact. Yeah. Um, maybe they will be self-driving cars and we'll all be in car-sharing programs, but they're still a physical vehicle. Mm-hmm. Right? That someone needs to produce. That someone needs to produce. So I I think it's false to think that somehow the physical world suddenly disappears. disappears yeah. I, I hope it doesn't. I but, hope, but, but, I sincerely, if it does disappear, I want to be dead by that point. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but I think to Lala's point, I kind of want my Scandinavian values Volvo to be the autonomous car. Maybe more than someone else, and not the one that, where the marketing says that you can really that it's self-driving, so that you can go to sleep or watch a movie. <laughs> and you have a Polestar as well. Uh, I have so. I have a Swedish uh, no self-driving car with electric. No, but I think that the point is, you know, of course, we we need to at least do what we can to make use of data and AI in the best way for Sweden and Swedish companies and European companies and, and right the, and. There's I, also the matter beyond companies uh, to democracy, right? Yes. And, and protecting Absolutely. democracy. Exactly. And, and, uh, and that is going in a bit of a wrong direction, right? Recent years. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. But again, these are some, I'm going to go back to biases. So one of my biggest concerns about AI and, and data in general is that it introduces bias and mm. it introduces bias based on human history. Mm. So your artificial intelligence is only as good as the training data sets that it's given. Right. If the training data sets teach that AI that women are in the kitchen barefoot and pregnant and people that are not melatonin challenged like I am, but actually have beautiful darker skin are somehow inferior because of their beautiful darker skin, then that's shit. But unfortunately for the last 500 years of written history, that is what the data teaches. 
my biggest concern is not necessarily who takes control of the data, but that the biases that we introduce into the data based on our own cultural historic biases aren't being counteracted actively by the people that own the technology that owns the data. Do you think Does that, that could be? Um, do you think that could be like a, a differentiator between the Swedish and European approach compared to other? God, I would hope so. On the other hand, I say this with complete love. I love this country. I love this country so much. We are a little homogenous. Yeah. When I'm with my coloring and my social ethnic ethnicity. Ethnic, ethnic background and a massive minority. Yeah, and true. I am a middle class white lady with great hair. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we are, a, well, less we, we are fairly we homogenous. Be, we are still fairly homogenous. Yeah. And we're an immensely tiny country. Again, I love us so much, but there's 10 million people in this country. Again, that's the population of greater Chicago. I think technically that's 9.5 million, but that's close enough. I think what you said is still, you know, if we just try to end on a bit positive note here. Oh, here. You want me to be positive, <laughs> but we're getting to like, you know, seven o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what you said, you know, it's not a question of having to catch up, having to redo what all, all the other, you know, tech companies and giants have done, but it's about finding our way. We should learn from others, which you said, but adapt to our needs, right? I don't think do the same. I think do better. Yeah. Do do the find the point, find the niche, find the find approach. The, yeah, find something that's better, bigger, brighter, more wonderful. Why do you have to be the next Amazon? Can't you be better? Mm. Why do you have to be the next Bezos or yeah. Sergey or Larry or Eck? I don't care. Elon. Be somebody else. We haven't touched Elon Musk yet. It would be so fun no. to go there. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Don't necessarily. But why? Why do you have to be those guys? Mm. And let's be honest, they are all guys. guys. Yeah. Predominantly white, heterosexual males as well. So yeah. why do you have to be one of them? Why can't you be somebody different, somebody new, somebody that's doing something that, yeah, maybe building on the shoulders of those previous things that came before, but is doing something wonderful and new? I don't like the idea of catching up. Mm. I like the idea of, okay, that's been done. Now let's do something different. Yeah. That's, that's a good note, by the way. And I don't like the idea of praising white, arrogant men. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. Um, awesome. I think that sounds really good. It's um, perfect, I think, potential. Don't here. catch up. Yeah. That's, we we, we collect T-shirts. We collect T-shirts here. Don't catch up. Don't great, catch up. I'm totally going the Don't catch up and, and getting that printed. Dare not to catch up. Huh? Yeah. Awesome, um, Lidiana. What's next in your life? Summer holiday. Oh yeah. No, June second, my first vaccination. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're going vaccinated. Oh, that's awesome. Pace to be old. <laughs> I am very excited. I am super. Do you excited. know what you're getting, Astra? I don't care. I just want my first vaccine, <laughs> and then um, my sister and my brother-in-law and my great nephew are coming to visit this summer because they've all been vaccinated. So, so the, the the question was, what is you looking forward to the most when you that, get vaccinated? Exactly. That. That. You my answered it. My sister and my brother-in-law are getting off a plane, like an actual physical flight from oh, Chicago, oh, and nice. I am getting real physical hugs. Oh, really? A hug. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I am so excited. Could be a really nice summer if yeah. you're lucky. I don't care if it rains the entire summer. I'm getting hugs. Have yeah. I mentioned <laughs> hugs? <laughs> I love that. Uh, Lydia, anyone that you would recommend to come on this podcast? Someone that you would like to listen to yourself? Oh, my goodness. 
So many people. Um, I think you guys should invite uh, Jess Forbes, who's currently at Cree, and she's a VP of product there. Yes, Jess Forbes. Uh, Cree, right? Yep. She's former Spotify. She's also an expat American. I love her to bits. Hi, Jess. I'm volunteering you. She'll kill me later. It's fine. (laughs) Um, I think because when you guys are talking about data science and information technology in general and artificial intelligence, the way that it impacts products, especially things like medical products, would be super interesting. Totally yeah. invite Jess. I vote for Jess. Yeah. That sounds great. That's a good suggestion. And she'll listen to this and uh, I will be blocked <laughs> over the head. But that's okay. Love you, Jess. Awesome. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Two flies. Yeah, it does. And uh, so many good advices, I think, you know. Thank you. That we heard from you. And, and uh, really great to hear from people that do have proper experience in working for one it, at really big, you know, tech giants. And, and also... Have you have the t-shirts to prove it. Yeah. Yeah. And the hoodies. Yeah, you have the hoodies and the t-shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the best merch? Who's got the best merch? Spotify got pretty good merch. <laughs> I have a good Spotify hoodie. I wear that yeah. a lot. Uh, I still wear mine as well. I have really a good. lot of Google hoodies I still wear. I never got a Google hoodie. I think I, I have 20 lot. t-shirts or something. But I never I've got, got a lot of t-shirts. And I have a Google tent. I haven't used that a lot. I got Rather because work. I had my son while I was still at Google. I had a lot of Google baby gear because people baby kept telling him. But you know, he's obviously eight now. He's way outgrown it. But I had a lot of that. And I, uh, I like I like the tent thing. That's cool merch. <laughs> I don't know. They just gave it out one day, and I uh, in London. And I have to be happened to be there and picked it up. I have a, a Shipstead like one of those water pouch wallets. Mm. Multi, my other half, he kayaks a lot, so he uses that a lot. So uh, it's like one of those waterproof. The useful merch, actually yeah, totally useful. useful merch. Oh. He uses that constantly. Like right now, he's using it every weekend. So mm. uh, there you go. Merch. And Lala, thanks again for coming yeah, here. Awesome. Wonderful to be always here. <laughs> that, to this was you. such a treat yeah. to, to have you as a team to discuss this with the similar experiences. Mm. That's like boom. Yeah. Yeah, nice. It's nice for us to actually have the first time you know, two guests on the yeah. show as well. This was the uh, evolution. Nice. This was the next level in our show. Nice. Super cool. Glad we could be there. Cool. Thank you very much. Have an awesome evening and um, see you all soon. See you soon. Bye-bye.